The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. From at least as early as 1985 to at least as recently as 2007, a serial killer Lonnie David Franklin Jr., eventually dubbed the Grim Sleeper, roamed the streets of South Central Los Angeles, where he was born and raised, targeting young and particularly vulnerable women. This killer kidnapped, raped, beat, typically shot his victims with a small 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol he often carried in his shirt pocket. He obsessively took photos of his victims, both dead and alive, both clothed and nude, often in sexually explicit positions, saving them as trophies and keeping them carefully tucked away in the garage behind his home where he worked. His youngest victim, just 15 years old. Not apprehended until 2010, the grim sleeper roamed the streets of South Central for a quarter of a century. Incredible, he got away considering how careless he was with his murders. Rather than carefully hiding the remains of his victims in some heavily wooded body disposal site, he typically just tossed them out of his old Pinto and into some urban alley. The bodies were often discovered the next morning after he killed them. And he almost always shot his victims while they were still sitting inside his car. He left so much evidence. He took photos of the victims, shared them with any of his friends who wanted to see him. Not the best way to not get caught, but no one tipped the police off to him. And he wasn't caught for so, so long. Why? How? NHI. No human involved. NHI was a term thrown around by some LAPD officers originally investigating the murders in the mid-80s when the killings began. And it was used because the victims were often sex workers or all assumed to be turning tricks on the side at least, and all or at least nearly all of them addicted to crack cocaine. And they were black. The term crackhead was thrown around a lot and hooker. It was like the victims weren't seen as humans. They were viewed as less than human. They were black crackhead hookers. So who cares? NHI, no human involved. So no real investigative priority given. But this is not going to be some LAPD blame game. Some apathy from the LAPD only partially explains why Lonnie was able to keep killing for so long. There was a lot of outrage over how the Grim Sleeper investigation was handled. But to be fair to the police, the murders were investigated. Detectives were assigned. Leads were followed. 
but it's real hard to solve a series of serial murders when the murders are the work of just one of many serial killers active in the same area at the same time in an area also full of a lot of gang murders and numerous other random homicides as well. South Central LA was one of the most murderous, if not the most murderous neighborhood in all of America in the 80s and 90s. Still is an incredibly violent neighborhood. And at the height of the murders, it was a predominantly black, poor, crime-riddled neighborhood with a strong local sentiment of both fuck the police and don't snitch. And a lot of cultural apathy also helped the grim sleeper keep killing. Being a snitch, talking to the police, was seen by many South Central residents, definitely by a lot of people who Lonnie ran with as being lower than being an actual criminal. You don't call the police because you don't want the neighborhood to see you as a snitch. And also due to fear of the police. You don't want to call the police and have them show up and shoot you. That was the mentality of a South Central mother interviewed in a documentary I watched about all this. That's what she taught her kids. Do not talk to the police ever about anything. And many others who live near Lonnie Franklin seem to share that sentiment. So sad, a history of bad relations between LAPD members and black South Central neighborhoods due to a lot of racism over the years definitely also helped Lonnie out. How were the police supposed to solve a series of murders in a neighborhood where on average a few people were killed every single day when almost no one wanted to help them with the investigation. And the LAPD were far from the only ones who saw the grim sleeper victims as less than human. So did many of the people outraged by their handling of their investigation. Many residents of South Central felt no different than the police. They didn't care about black crackhead hookers either. Old friends of Lonnie's after he was arrested when being interviewed for a documentary while being real careful not to snitch and say they didn't think Lonnie uh, did it, they also laughed talking about how much Lonnie hated crackheads. They laughed about how if a crackhead got into a car with Lonnie, they could see how they probably weren't going to ever come back out. It was a big joke. Of course, Lonnie got away with what he did for so long. If both the cops and the neighborhood see the victims as disposable, if women are being murdered in a neighborhood where people are being murdered every single day, if almost no one is willing to help the police in their investigation, well, then I guess killers just get to keep killing, don't they? A lot of different factors allowed Lonnie and others like him to get away with what they did when they did it. Lonnie was one of numerous serial killers active in South Central during the violent crackademic world of the 80s and 90s when police were overwhelmed, overtired, often just plain burnt the fuck out. Tired of trying to put out what seemed like a never-ending series of fires in a neighborhood that seemed like it was continually engulfed in murderous flames. Homicide detectives got new cases weekly, if not daily, most of them involving drugs or gang-related violence. Eyewitnesses were hard to come by, reluctant to talk and do again to the crap ep crack epidemic ravaging South Central, notoriously unreliable. How long can one work in that kind of environment before you become incredibly jaded? desensitized to murder. And residents were desensitized towards people going missing, towards people they knew being murdered. How could they not be? They were a lot more interested in just keeping their heads down, trying to survive than they were in trying to worry about other people's problems. All these circumstances aligned perfectly to allow the Grim Sleeper to prey on the women of South Central for a long, long time. The story of the Grim Sleeper is not just a story of a serial killer. It's a story of a twisted, sadistic man who hid in plain sight, an overworked police department, a distrustful and broken neighborhood, and vulnerable women seen as disposable due to a combination of their race, line of work, gender, and drug addiction. Today, we meet the Grim Sleeper, find out how he got that nickname, meet a few of his fellow neighborhood serial killing dirtbags, and learn a little bit about South Central and the crack epidemic on another true crime serial killer edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. 
Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Take a break from the world around you that, in many places, and definitely according to the news, often seems like a continually burning dumpster fire these days, where emotion and rage seem to continually trump reason and consideration, but you're here. You're alive. You woke up this morning. The Reaper didn't visit last night. The Grim Sleeper didn't visit you. You got air in your lungs, and I hope, you know, either a dick that can still get hard or a puss that can still get wet. So you're winning, you beautiful motherfucker. You're listening to an episode about a serial killer. You're not being attacked by a serial killer. That's something, right? Thank you for listening to my crazy ass. I'm Dan Kelman's master sucker, the suck master, the crown jewels jeweler, quality control inspector, Illuminati shill, dude trying to apply common sense to a world around him like a stupid sheeple son of a bitch. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, hoping I had fun with some of you in Philly last weekend. Looking forward to continuing the Symphony of Insanity stand-up tour. Hasn't gotten shut down yet. In Columbus, Ohio, to Funny Bone, September 24th, 25th, two nights only. Then Cobbs in San Francisco, October 8th and 9th. Wording on their website is a little weird. It says rescheduled because it was rescheduled from an earlier time, not because it's being rescheduled. Uh, Spokane on October 15th to the 17th. Kansas City, October 22nd to the 24th. Just added a Sunday show in KC. Because the Friday and Saturday shows already sold out. So thank you. Thank you, Johnny Dare. All those appearances over the years helped out tremendously. Love, Johnny. Fine meat sack. A reminder that the Bad Magic Productions Charity of the Month is the American Nurses Foundation Coronavirus Response Fund for Nurses, donating 15,400 of our Patreon subscriptions. Thank you, Space Lizards. Nurses have bore the brunt of the work this past 18 months with the ongoing pandemic. Uh, this response fund provides mental health support, direct financial aid, education, evidence-based information, and overall advocacy for nurses. Uh, to find out more, click the link in the episode description or just search Coronavirus Response Fund for Nurses on the interwebs, and it comes up first. And finally, new Time Suck Universe T in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Fun collage design, a lot of random objects associated with Time Suck in some way. The art warlock never sleeping on new designs. And one last thing. Don't have exact dates. Don't even have a lot of info. Uh, but we put a down payment on reserving a Boy Scout camp on Lake Coeur d'Alene. Uh, they're not going to be there this week. Uh, hired an event planner for the Bad Magic Gathering of 2022. It'll happen in August. Uh, if it happens, looks like it's going to happen. Wanted to do it last year, but COVID fucked that up. Fucked up 2021. Really hoping things are 99% back to normal December 2022. I think they're going to be uh, going to have limited tickets when we do announce it. We'll have more details regarding food trucks, games, live music, live podcasts, etc. It'll be in conjunction with Scared to Death and Is We Dumb? We plan on going big. So keep that in the back of your mind for 2022 travel plans. An overnight adult fun camp with a bunch of people who are decent but have fucked up senses of humor. Cult. Cult, cult. More details down the road. And now show. Uh, it's grim sleeper time. Let's hop into a time machine. Head back to South Central LA in the 80s. Get our minds around the urban war zone where Lonnie Franklin hunted his prey, where he was but one of many monsters. Gonna start by examining America's 80s crack epidemic in South Central a bit. Then we'll meet Lonnie in today's timeline where the majority of the episode will take place. In the 1980s, the Los Angeles metro area was a place of so much wealth and promise for some and for others, such a hopeless, crime-filled city. I guess it's still that way in parts, neighborhoods. So crazy that Beverly Hills, a neighborhood perhaps more traditionally symbolic of success and wealth than any other neighborhood in America, Rodeo Drive, people, only about 15 miles away from the roughest parts of South Central. 15 miles away from such a different world, especially back in the 80s and 90s. And, and, and by the way, there are parts of South Central that are fantastic, great neighborhoods. This is, you know, speaking in general, general, generalities. There we go. 
because I don't want to get it bogged down and like, well, but actually the, this one street, but ah, but actually this little block is fine. That just bogs it down too much. And there's already a lot of info to cover here today. Uh, the Watts neighborhood of South Central and the area around it, just north of Compton, just east of Inglewood, where a lot of today's story takes place, has a median household income based on the most recent data available of $37,553. Beverly Hills, almost three times that, $106,936. The poverty rate of Beverly Hills, uh, they do have some apartments, not all mansions, 8.25%. Poverty rate of Watts, 31.1%. And things in South Central are much better now, much better than they were when Lonnie started killing. The murder rate for South Central and how it's changed over the years is a little hard to identify because most crime stats for South Central get lumped into overall LA crime stats. But according to areavibes.com, which ranks neighborhoods across the country in uh, various categories compared to the national average, Beverly Hills has 21% less violent crime than the national average, while Watts has 321% more crime than the national average. And again, used to be much worse than that. According to the LA Times, the nation's response to the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s destroyed rather than built up neighborhoods. South Central became an impoverished, predominantly African-American area with high crime rates and no job opportunities. In the 80s, crack dealers employed more South Central residents than major companies like AT&T, IBM, and Xerox combined. So what the fuck happened? How did South Central become what it became? Let's look at the area's history. Uh, the roots of South Central Los Angeles' current state trace back to the beginning of the 20th century. The neighborhood now known as Historic South Central includes the area between the Harbor Freeway on the west, Central Avenue on the east, Washington Boulevard on the north, and Vernon Avenue on the south. Though this pocket is about 40 square miles big, the name South Central became an umbrella term for Black Los Angeles, a much larger area stretching all the way to Watson Compton on the south and west across the 110 Freeway into Inglewood and the Crenshaw District. Technically, the term South Central was only geographically accurate for the rectangular parcel of the Central Avenue corridor, but as history has shown, neighborhood names and popular culture, not always historically or geographically accurate. Historian Steve Izarati, or Izarati, I don't know. His name is, I can only find it written, not pronounced, I-S-O-A-R-D-I. Your guess is as good as mine. Steve Izarati, 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 uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Writes about how the term South Central became to be in his book, The Dark Tree. Lured by an expanding economy and the prospect of jobs, the relatively low cost of real estate, a mild climate, and a seemingly less overt racism, African-Americans began moving to Los Angeles in large numbers after 1900. For the next 40 years, their numbers doubled every decade, and by 1940, represented slightly more than 4% of the total population. These new residents were moving into a heavily segregated city. Racially restrictive housing covenants were direct, written directly into L.A. area property deeds like they were in many other parts of America, like they were basically in all of America. Banks and insurance companies also enforced this segregation through the practice of denying loans, insurance policies, and other financial services for African-Americans who attempted to sidestep these covenants. This practice is known as redlining. It continued well after these covenants were declared unconstitutional in 1948. One of the only areas not covered in these restrictive covenants extended south from downtown LA along Central Avenue all the way to Slauson. As uh, Izardi Iza, Iza Iza states, by 1940, approximately 70% of the black population of Los Angeles was confined to the Central Avenue corridor. Because this stretch was, uh, was along the southern section of Central Avenue, the term South Central Los Angeles gradually entered into the local vernacular by the 1920s. South Central 
became a blanket term for all of black Los Angeles from Central Avenue to Watts to the Crenshaw District. The African-American population of South Central then doubled because of the Second World War. The need for workers in the aerospace industry and other wartime jobs caused the U.S. government to make it illegal for government contractors to discriminate in hiring. The opening of these jobs lured thousands and thousands of African-Americans to L.A. in the 40s. Lonnie G. Bunch. Thank you, Lonnie, for having a last name that is easy and phonetic. A longtime historian with the Smithsonian Institute writes, between 1942 to 1945, some 340,000 blacks settled in California, 200,000 of whom migrated to L.A. Damn, 200,000 people flooding into mostly South Central, primarily because of the restrictive covenants between 1942 and 1945. This period became known as the Great Migration. The Great Migration led to the heyday of Central Avenue as a jazz district and the West Coast Harlem. Numerous eateries, music venues, nightclubs like the Lincoln Theater, Club Alabama. Uh, stretched from Pico to Slauson from the 1920s to the early 60s. The Dunbar Hotel at 43rd, uh, 43rd and Central was where jazz luminaries like Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, and Lester Young would stay when they visited Los Angeles. Despite the story, musical and cultural history, though, a serious lack of housing and overcrowding, right? So many people coming in. Housing couldn't keep up. Made for poor living conditions for local residents. In 1948, the court case Shelley versus Kramer rendered the restrictive housing covenants illegal and then things opened up as far as where black residents could live a little bit because people just still refused to loan a lot of uh, African-Americans' money. Uh, gradually to the 50s, a broader southern section of, of L.A., from Watts and West towards Inglewood and the Crenshaw District became increasingly African-American. West Adams, uh, Limert Park, Baldwin Hills gradually became middle-class and upper-middle-class African-American areas. Uh, Burbank and Beverly Hills, neighborhoods like that, they stayed white as fuck. As the 1950s gave way to the early 60s, more neighborhoods were desegregated and several of the leading black churches were beginning to wield political influence in local civic affairs. By the early 60s, side states, uh, African-Americans had significantly transformed their status in Los Angeles. Their protests were widespread, their demands were well-known, and their political influence, if still uneven, was undeniable. Most important, African-Americans participated in daily urban life in ways that would have been impossible two decades earlier. This is another historian saying this. Uh, however, one area where LA's black community did not make progress in the 50s and 60s was with their relationship with local law enforcement. The reputation of the LAPD became especially notorious for being racist under the long reign of Chief William Parker from 1950 to 1966. Parker infamous for not only promoting racial profiling and aggressive policing policies, but also for harassing black businesses and black patrons along Central Avenue. So frequently that his policing methods led to not only breaking up Central Avenue's vibrancy, but also to the 1965 Watts riots. Parker was a puritanical crusader against what he called race mixing. He's a real piece of shit and not a big fan of jazz either, apparently. A lot of nightclubs, juke joints, raided and shuttered under his reign. Uh, here's an example of the kind of shit he pulled. Uh, 1954, John Dolphin, owner of Los Angeles' uh, premier R&B record shop near the corner of Vernon and Central, organized a protest of 150 black business people against an ongoing campaign of intimidation and terror directed at interracial trade. According to Dolphin, Park and his officers blockaded his store, turned away all white customers, and warned them that it was too dangerous to hang around black neighborhoods. Right, just went out of their way to fuck with their business. It was episodes like that that would create the kind of racial tension that would explode in the 1965 Watts riots. Another issue I had never heard of before this uh, week that stifled the once prosperous spirit of the South Central community was the California State Highway Commission's campaign to build both the 110 and I-10 through the heart of South Central. The path for Interstate 10 was especially troubling because it cut directly through a 500-foot-wide section of West Adams 
known as Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill was considered one of the most beautifully well-kept neighborhoods of African-Americans anywhere in America. Many residents felt the freeway's path going right through it was a big fuck you to the black community. And it seems like, you know, it probably was. African-Americans in Santa Monica opposed the proposed route also through their area because it bisected the one small black community in Santa Monica, an enclave near Pico and 26th. I-10 ended up bulldozing through both neighborhoods, destroying hundreds of houses of relatively affluent black residents, gutting the heart of the black community. A similar process happened 10 miles east of Sugar Hill in Boyle Heights, where five freeways intersect, including the 10. The destructive process of freeway construction uh, also just happened to occur in a neighborhood of color. Weird. Uh, and then the Watts riots happened. Issues like highway construction combined with frustration with the LAPD and a general brewing unrest of racial inequality and inner city poverty contributed to the outbreak of six days of rioting in Watts in August of 1965. The catalyst for the riots occurred on August 11th on a warm night when a highway patrol motorcycle officer pulled over a young African-American man named Marquette Fry for speeding. Large crowd assembled around the officers as they attempted to arrest Fry and the unrest began. I discussed uh, this in more detail in SUCK 209, the American Riots episode. In quick summation, six days of rioting covered about 46 square miles, left 34 people, mostly black dead, over 1,000 wounded, almost 4,000 arrested. Property damage amounted to 40 million with over 600 buildings damaged and, uh, and or destroyed. Parts of the area never financially recovered from this devastating destruction. And when recovery finally happened, didn't last long. Uh, you know, uh, in 1970, 1975, the black arts movement in LA flourished in Southern California. It would continue in a more limited form beyond 1975, but then changing economic conditions and changes to public policy, drastic changes in the late seventies. And then the rise of Reaganomics in the eighties led to less and less funding for the arts, more difficult circumstances for local artists and musicians, economic restructuring in the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, encouraged factories to move out to the suburbs, out of urban areas in many cities, including LA. Other changes in the economy made all those jobs black residents moved across the country for in the Great Migration suddenly real scarce. Fueled primarily by a wave of plant closures in the 70s and 80s, black unemployment and poverty rates rose. Back in the 60s, L.A. County was the second largest automaking center in the U.S., right behind Detroit. Then GM, Chrysler, Ford, and others moved their plants. Other once prosperous local SoCal industries you know, like oil drilling, refining also saw a lot of jobs leave the area. The aerospace industry saw some jobs leave the area. No good, uh, you know, good paying jobs, no new ones replaced the holes that the plants leaving left in the local economy. The Bay Area was able to transition into tech during the late 70s and 80s when they saw a similar migration of some industries. Uh, LA did not see any equivalent job growth. The area began to lean more and more heavily on filmmaking, right? And the LA film industry has never provided nearly enough jobs to employ millions. And that Hollywood machinery, has never done more than really just kind of dip its toes into South Central. And then at the same time a lot of jobs are leaving, there was also substantially less social program funding. This is fucking huge. Once in office in early 1981, President Reagan cut a total of $140 billion from U.S. social programs, including the elimination of free school lunches for over a million impoverished kids. Uh, food stamps, the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, federal guaranteed loan programs for higher education, uh, federally funded legal assistance, and other similar programs these programs' budgets were slashed big time. Reagan immediately reduced funding for the aforementioned programs by $44 billion. Who did this all hurt? Right, It hurt the poorest Americans, which included many of the recently unemployed residents of South Central. The timing was horrible. And then guess who else showed the fuck up in South Central in 1981, right? Amidst all this, crack. So much fucking crack. 
uh, throwback to the uh, old Tupac episode there. Uh, Met's arguably much more destructive cousin, right? New freeways cut through the heart of the nicest black neighborhoods. Jobs go away. Social prog- programs get massively cut. So many poor people are hurting. Then crack shows up and is like, hey, I can make you forget about all that shit. I can make you forget about your problems. Just smoke me. Come on. Come on. Do it. What do you have to lose? Everything? <laughs> I guess, but come on. Losing everything never felt so good. Crack. Fucking crack. Uh, many of the black neighborhoods of South Central unsurprisingly, quickly collapsed into urban decay. It was too much. Uh, crack was the straw that just fucking destroyed a bunch of backs. Let's talk about crack for a second. Forget what I said a moment ago. I was joking about crack being really bad. Uh, that's actually a silly rumor spread by the DES propaganda. Uh, a bunch of jokesters. No, no, crack is actually really good for you. Uh, did you know that in each and every crack rock, you get 345% of your daily recommended dosage of vitamin C? Yeah, but you hadn't heard that, huh? Or that crack is loaded with vitamins D, E, K, B6, B12, uh, full of important minerals like magnesium and potassium. They don't. They didn't. They didn't teach me that in the Dare program. Crack is an important source of lean proteins, omega three fatty acids. Fuck yeah! If you smoke at least three crack rocks a day, you don't even need fruits or vegetables anymore. And speaking of crack, let me introduce our first sponsor. Today's time suck is brought to you by Whipple Crack Edition. Gunther Whipple here again. Whipple President and CEO. Fuck you. Too much of a fucking whiny whip to smoke some crack? Okay. Well then, drink Whipple Crack Edition instead. Our new crack addition to the Whipple family has zero caffeine. You don't need caffeine when you have crack. That's like adding a wine cooler to a gallon of moonshine when you're trying to get drunk. In every 10-ounce can of Whipple, crack, there's 140 fucking grams of crack. Yes, this isn't your mama's crack. This is 1,400 times a typical recreational dose. What? You thought you were going to tiptoe into fucking crack? Here at Whipple, we go big or we go home. So drink some crack. Yeah, it's probably going to kill you. So what? Drink a second can and come back. Or just lay there crying about how your fucking heart exploded. Fuck you. Fuck your family. Double fuck your heart. And drink Whipple. Now available in strawberry, cardiac arrest, and orange citrus autopsy flavors. Yeah. Still with Whipple ads. Uh, not sure how long I'm going to keep uh, you know beating that dead horse. Uh, but for real, crack showed the fuck up in South Central 1981. Big way. It did kind of Whipple its way into South Central. And crack is really, really, really bad for you. Crack is cocaine that's been combined with other substances to form white crystals resembling small rocks. Users heat and smoke it. And uh, cocaine is awesome. JK, kind of. You never know if it's been laced with something, so maybe don't do it. Uh, It's a white powder. It comes from the leaves of the cocoa plant. Most users snort it. Some rub it into their gums. There are also other ways, much less common, to inject it or smoke it. And crack is cocaine's most addictive form. And the AmericanAddictionCenter.org AmericanAddictionCenters.org lists cocaine as the most addictive drug. So crack is the most addictive form of arguably the most addictive narcotic. Crack doesn't fuck around. Many of you already know that I openly uh, uh, endorse legalizing drugs to reduce the number of nonviolent offenders in prison, transition to a rehab and education kind of priority, not an arrest and incarceration focus when it comes to drug use, but still don't fuck around with crack ever. Seriously. This episode is going to lay out in many ways is just a giant PSA to never smoke crack. It's about as smart as playing Russian roulette. The effects of smoking crack are instant and intense. They can last uh, up to 10 minutes is all. The effects of snorting cocaine can start within five minutes, last up to 30 minutes, less intense than smoking it. The fast, short nature of crack highs, uh, most likely what makes it more addictive. Crack is inhaled through the lungs, spreads to the body, producing the high much more quickly, lasts for a shorter time than snorting cocaine, says John Giord- uh, Giordano, an addiction counselor and the founder of the National Institute for Holistic Addiction Studies, adding, this causes a cycle of binging and crashing, which puts the user at a greater risk of dependence. 
And crack rock, rocks uh, first hit the LA streets in 1981, an alarming increase in hospital emergency rooms, uh, emergency room visits quickly followed. And it got worse year after year. Crack may have fucked up South Central in the 80s and 90s more than any other single factor. In 1985, cocaine-related hospital emergency visits rose up to 26,300. Uh, 26, in 1986, these incidents rose uh, another 110%, up to 55,200. And then between 84 and 87, cocaine incidents increased to 94,000. Uh, yeah, yeah, 55,200. There we go. 26,300. Is that what I said earlier? Lose my mind. Uh, despite all this, early governmental response was neglect. Why? Probably because crack flooded the streets of South Central instead of Beverly Hills and Malibu, where powdered cocaine was much more popular. Snorting coke quickly became associated with middle class and affluent whites. Smoking crack became associated with poor blacks. Why? Money. Crack is easier to develop than powder cocaine. It's more cost efficient to produce. can be cut down further with shit like baking soda. Crack is cheap. It was sold for as little as $2.50 per vial, a small capsule that contains pebble-sized pieces of crack that were approximately one-tenth of a gram of powdered cocaine. Meanwhile, a gram of cocaine uh, would cost around 750 bucks in 1981, uh, much more expensive than it is now. Uh, by the end of the decade, it would drop below 300 The price of crack would drop with it. As you can see, if you're poor, if you're living in South Central, you might not be able to afford to buy, you know, a tenth of a gram of Coke for 75 bucks if they even sell that small of an amount. But you could probably buy that much crack for $2.50. And that purchase of only just a couple bucks would immediately fuck your whole world up. You'd get real, real high and, uh, you know, it'd quickly leave you with side effects like weight loss, high blood pressure, hallucinations, seizures, paranoia, not giving a fuck about anything other than getting more crack. Because that high is going to be gone in 10 minutes or less. You can go through several rounds of crack pretty fucking fast, right? You can get high, go back to being sober, get high, go back to being sober, go get high, get back to being sober, you know, in less than an hour. And you can go from never having used it ever before to being seriously addicted in just a single day. And when the so-called crack epidemic took hold, America had a choice to make. View it primarily as a health and welfare issue, put money into education and rehab, or view it primarily as a criminal act to put money into law enforcement and incarceration. And America chose the latter. And that choice kicked South Central right in the fucking dick. Uh, the, uh, the judicial system made crack public enemy number one when it came to drugs, punishing crack users uh, literally a hundred times more severely than punishing powdered cocaine users. How crazy is that? A hundred times more severely. That decision was really fucking stupid and blatantly racist. And it did not slow down crack use. It did send a lot of people to prison for dealing crack. And once in prison for a long crack sentence, you know, once forced to join the gangs that ruled prison in the 80s and 90s, if you weren't a hardened criminal when you got there, you probably were by the time you got back out and moved back to your neighborhood, a neighborhood like South Central. Persons convicted in federal court of possession of five grams of crack received a minimum mandatory sentence of five years in federal prison. You would have to possess 500 grams of regular Coke to get that same sense. That is so absurd. That is fucking unreal. Trying to sell less than a fifth of an ounce of crack would get you the same sentence as trying to move over a pound of Coke. This policy put a lot of young men black in prison. In 2012, 88% of imprisonments from crack were African-American. 1986, 134% more people went to prison for drug violations than in 1980. Uh, one in every four African-American males aged 20 to 29 was either incarcerated or on probation or parole by 1989 largely for crack-related offenses, which contributed to the U.S. having the highest incarceration rate in the world. By 1995, that stat had increased to nearly one in three, to nearly one in three African-American males aged 20 to 29 
in prison, largely for drug offenses. What the fuck? Uh, with the high risk of a longer sentence, why were so many young black men fucking around with crack? Well, money. Again, money. Money is the answer to so many questions. Uh, the loss of quality urban jobs and a decrease in social program funding contributed to the rise of the crack cocaine economy. Crack offered a quick fix with a high profit margin, right? You could keep selling to the same addicts over and over and over because they constantly needed more crack. Small-time dealer can net a profit of 2,000 bucks a month selling crack. That's equivalent to about $6,000 a month now, and that's tax-free money. That's like making 130, 140K a year in a regular job. With all that money to be made, South Central saw a major rise in crack dealers, and thus a major rise in gangs fighting for the right to sell that crack. As local gangs, Bloods and Crips in particular, got more and more involved in LA's crack industry, that murder rate naturally skyrocketed. In the 70s, LA County saw an 84% increase in murders. The rate rose from 12.5 per 100,000 in 1970 to 23 per 100,000 in 1979. And then the rate just kept going up. By 1990, it's 28.3. Uh, law enforcement responds with mass arrest, mass incarceration. Police Chief Daryl Gates, Chief of the LAPD uh, from 78 to 1992, deployed armored cars to break down crack homes uh, during weekend raids. Officers will arrest uh, hundreds of people in a single weekend for nonviolent offenses. Many of those who were released uh, claim they often found their cars have been destroyed after the police impounded and searched them. So they're uh, more hard up than they were before they went in, which gave them more incentive to try and deal some crack again. All this happening during the height of the infamous and misguided war on drugs, a war that also became a war on drug selling gangs in South Central. The police constantly responding to drug and homicide calls. Officers were quickly overwhelmed. Massive hiring programs still was not enough to stop the bleeding, to literally stop the bleeding. There was just way too much crime, too many drugs, too many murders for officers to handle. In the 80s, LA's murder rate was over three times greater than it is today. And more of those murders occurred in South Central than in any other area of the city. Uh, LAPD's 77th Division worked most of the cases in South Central. Homicide detectives in South Central were overworked, tired compared to homicide detectives in wealthier neighborhoods. 77th Division got over 130 murder cases, murder cases a year uh, with only eight detectives to work them all. Craziness. Uh, and let me back up for a second, actually, that uh, uh, more than three times greater than it is today. That was actually more than three times greater than it was a few years ago based on that particular uh, information. I just saw an article uh, after I kind of made the notes about how there's been a recent rise, 2020, 2021, with homicides again in LA County. Uh, with all the shit going on, South Central also had, in the 80s and 90s, multiple serial killers to deal with, including the grim sleeper, Lonnie Franklin Jr. So much serial killing that in 1985, South Central resident Margaret Prescott founded the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders to protest the LAPD's lack of policing in the areas where murders occurred. Their mission statement declared the low-profile media coverage and problems with the investigation are examples of women's lives not counting and black prostitute women counting least of all. Okay, now that we've established some crime context for South Central in the 80s when Lonnie got started, we're almost ready for Lonnie's timeline, and we'll meet some of those other serial killers in the, in the timeline. Uh, before getting into all that, I do want to make it clear that South Central, again, not some barren fucking wasteland. It can come across that way in much of this episode. There are plenty of nice neighborhoods. Plenty of nice homes with well-maintained lawns and hardworking, law-abiding families living inside of them. There are plenty of relatively safe streets, some good schools, good shopping, etc. But also some very troubled neighborhoods, especially in the 80s and 90s. In one dock, the producers went to an alley where one of the bodies of one of Lonnie's victims had been dumped years earlier and almost immediately uh, fled after hearing gunshots. And the guy who took him to the alley, he was not shook. He was not surprised. He's like, yeah, that's just kind of what happens around this alley. That was his, that was life. I've traveled all over. Uh, I drove through South Central at night back around 2005. One of the only times in my life I felt genuinely scared. 
I had, you know, so many people staring at me with the, what the fuck do you think you're doing here vibe? Did not feel a hopeful, welcoming vibe. Not a, hey, how you doing, buddy? Uh, felt a vibe of anger and fear. I've driven into plenty of other neighborhoods at night. Never felt what I felt in that uh, area of South Central, east of Inglewood, uh, north of Compton. So much respect for everyone able to grow up in an area like that and, and not turn to crime and not turn to violence. People who are able to hold down a steady job, buy a house, help raise a family, et cetera. Kudos to you. Hail to the South Central hardworking grinder. If you're one of those people, I think you've done something incredibly impressive. Thrived in an area with so much working against you that many people never have to face here in America, like a fucking crack ep epidemic, the gangs and the crime that come with that. You've thrived with so much working against you. So many people working against you. People like the grim sleeper. All right, now let's meet this evil motherfucker. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On August 30th, 1952, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. is born in South Central LA. His mom, Ruby, describes as a strong-willed former beauty school student from Texas, and his father, Lonnie Sr., uh, was half grizzly bear and half alligator. A lot of people think uh, his dad is where he got his murderous nature from. No, that'd be kind of awesome, actually. Uh, no, his dad described as a laid-back longshoreman, 100% human. Sounds like a good dude. Lonnie Jr. grew up in South Central, first on East 78th Street, then Grand Avenue, then West 81st, with his mom and dad and his sister, Patricia, five years younger than him. Otis, Ruby's older son from another relationship, grew up in Texas with relatives, but would visit the Franklin household during the summer. By all accounts, dude had a solid childhood. Uh, his parents were married. His dad had a solid union job, loading and unloading cargo ships uh, a few miles you know, from, from the home. On, on the coast back when nearby Venice Beach and El Segundo had a lot more industry than they do now. His mom raised the kids and from what it sounds, also sometimes worked as a hairstylist. When he was young, Lonnie did not show any behavioral problems. Uh, he was a poor student though who struggled with reading and writing. When he was in the fifth grade, Ruby hired a college student to tutor him. He had a tutor? That right there was an indication that the family was doing pretty well, right? Just a solid middle-class family. I don't, I don't even think I knew what a tutor was until maybe high school. Unfortunately, the extra study did not help his grades. Lonnie struggled through high school. His parents even had him change schools to try and help him uh, before he transferred to Dominguez High School in nearby Compton, where he enrolled in a work-study program. Went to school in the morning, then to a job in the afternoon. Dominguez High, named after Don Manuel Dominguez, a 19th century California rancher who inherited over 75,000 acres. From his dad, who inherited that land from his uncle, Juan Jose Dominguez, who had the land granted him by the King of Spain in 1784. Easy E, MC Wren, two members of the hip-hop supergroup NWA, gangster rap pioneers, they went to uh, Dominguez High. Pro Bowl, Legion of Boom, cornerback Richard Sherman went there. Whole bunch of formal, uh, former professional basketball, football, baseball players went to Dominguez. Uh, Franklin did not do real well there, but he did excel at fixing cars at his work-study program. Being an accomplished gearhead became a huge source of self-esteem for the future killer. Gave Lonnie a skill, some money he would use to impress girls apparently girl crazy, beginning at a young age, initially in a non-murderous way, which is obviously the uh, preferred way to be girl crazy. Unfortunately, he became, uh, it seems that his car skills led him into crime. He would quickly become known as the go-to mechanic for some local gangsters, uh, you know, when they needed stolen cars stripped or modified. Lonnie was no snitch, happy to make some extra cash working for whoever. Lonnie loved cars. He used them to pick up his victims later in life. He started driving them according to family lore when he was only seven years old. That's when Lonnie Sr. taught him to drive. Uh, that is ridiculous. Seven? Seven? Was he sitting on some phone books with more books taped to his shoes so he could reach the pedals? Driving at seven sounds like some little rascal shit. I'm guessing dad was helping him a bit for that first ride. He wasn't just, you know, taking loops around the block solo. 
picking up some friends for a play date. Uh, 1966, when he was just 14, his dad gave him his first car, allowed Franklin to drive it around the neighborhood. So that's when he started driving solo for real, got his license the following year. In addition to being a gearhead as a youngster, Franklin also known to be a fast talker and a flirt, always quick with a compliment. He would use those flirtation skills later to lure victims into his car. Uh, kind of. Uh, thanks to the crack epidemic, uh, the only flirtation skill he'd really need was to be able to say, hey, I, I have some crack. Uh, his first childhood crush was on a neighborhood girl when he was just seven or eight. In the eighth grade, he fell for a girl named Kate, lost his virginity to her when he was 14. They were a couple for about a year, from what I could tell. Uh, he didn't even kill her, single time. Ninth grade, Lonnie dated a classmate named Shannon until she moved to another state at the end of the school year. Franklin told some people he got Shannon pregnant. She had a son by him. I doubt it. He lied about uh, stuff from this period of his life. Unclear if Franklin had anything to do with the child or if that story is even true. Uh, Franklin's next major romance was with a girl named Rochelle. They had a pretty serious relationship that ended, uh, you know, or they ended up dating, excuse me, through Lonnie's junior and senior years. None of these people seem to have had any, at least they didn't come public with any, uh, that dude creeped me the fuck out stories in this phase of his life. From birth through around a sophomore year of high school, especially, he seemed to be, by all accounts, a mild-mannered, mostly respectful young man who liked to flirt with ladies. I wonder what some of these women, if they're still around, uh, thought when he was caught. How strange to have an ex who ends up being a serial killer. If I dated someone who turned out to be a serial killer, oh man, I'd definitely rack my brain. I'm trying to remember if they'd ever done anything indicative of being a psychopath. While Lonnie was going to high school and dating, he also started to get in trouble with the law. In 1969, at the age of 16, got arrested twice for grand theft auto. Uh, the following year, 1970, arrested for burglary. Then he got expelled from Dominguez High for getting into a fight with a classmate two weeks shy of graduation. That sucks. I remember a kid in my graduating class who dropped out during senior year. Man, so close. This was so confusing to me. He didn't even get kicked out. Wasn't even flunking out. Just didn't want to go anymore. Just didn't feel like hanging around to get that degree. Not sure what happened to him. Hopefully he made it out all right. But uh, man, odds are probably against that. You're definitely not doing your resume any favors when you drop out of high school. You can overcome that, of course, but digging yourself a hole right out the gate on your future career with that move. Uh, Lonnie soon got a job as a box boy when he got kicked out. Uh, it was called a box boy then as uh, called a bagger when I did it at a local grocery store. He was bagging people's groceries. He did that for about a year. And that takes us out of his childhood and into the 70s. Uh, again, yes, he had some trouble with the law, but it doesn't seem like he had an especially traumatic childhood. If he experienced any significant trauma or was abused in some way, or if he showed uh, signs of sociopathic behavior like some other serial killers have when they were younger, uh, we don't know about it. No one's ever come forward with any info regarding any of that that I'm aware of. And Lonnie certainly hasn't said shit about his past since being arrested. Dude would never admit uh, he killed anyone, despite an overwhelming amount of evidence, including a woman who it, uh, he attacked who lived, including so much DNA evidence. Uh, his family has not opened up about uh, him to anyone, to my knowledge, really. So let's move on to the next phase of his life, one that will turn pretty shitty pretty fast, but is kind of funny uh, and interesting. Let's talk about the five years he worked primarily as a birthday clown. Hello! From 1971 to 1976, Lonnie worked for Tayshawn Singing Telegrams. He'd show up at someone's office or house with, you know, uh, you know, or whatever, show up somewhere dressed in a old school classic bozo clown getup. So creepy to me. Uh, he wore a wig that was bald on top with red hair, you know, shooting out the sides, white face paint, the, the red noisemaker honked when you squeeze it on his nose, you know, big uh, oversized floppy shoes. Blue, loose-fitting, pajama-type clown outfit with a couple big red cotton balls covering buttons on the chest. You can find pictures of this online. Uh, some frills at the ends of his sleeves on his neckline. You've, you've seen it, this imagery. Uh, he was allegedly really good at juggling. Okay at making balloon animals. Better than average on the roller skates he would sometimes have to wear. 
not the best singing voice, but I guess he made up for it with enthusiasm. So weird. He had a decent clown name, I guess, Smacky. It would be very appropriate, actually. Uh, this is a job that would lead to his first real prison sentence. He just could not handle it when kids would laugh at him. Short temper, short fuse. And a lot of the time, uh, when they'd yell at him, you know, tease him, whatever, he'd, he'd get shitty with the kids. And then the parents, of course, they'd get mad. And then he would get even more upset. They'd get more upset. A brawl would sometimes break out. And after one of these brawls, he ended up getting a two-year prison sentence for putting the dad in the hospital after getting in a fight during the man's daughter's 16th birthday party after he realized they'd only hired him as a joke to mock him. I guess they kept making fart noises with their hands or something, blaming it on him, laughing at him when he got mad about it. And while he was in the middle of singing I'm a Little Teapot, a song they kept requesting over and over and over, he fucking snapped. He ended up trying to choke out the dad with a popped balloon giraffe. And then he tried to electrocute uh, the dad somehow with one of those kind of handshake buzzers. And as crazy as all this sounds, in the early and mid-70s, Lonnie was one of many birthday clowns to be sent to prison for assault and sometimes murder, part of an epidemic of clown-themed violence in the U.S., highlighted in Time Magazine in an expose titled Bozo Bops Back. That article would inspire President Jimmy Carter to pass a law tacking on additional mandatory sentencing for anyone committing assault while dressed in clown gear. And the same article would inspire Stephen King to begin writing It, which he'd finally publish a decade later in 1986. And one more thing, uh, did anyone believe fucking any of that? Any of that stupid clown bullshit at all? Did anyone pause the episode at the wrong time and tell people that America had a scourge of clown-related violence in the 70s? Did anyone tell that to a friend or coworker who now thinks you're completely out of your fucking mind? God, I hope so. I'm done now for, 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 the, moment, for the moment. The next phase of Lonnie's life does turn pretty shitty pretty fast, though. That part was true. On July 26, 1971, one month shy of turning 19, Franklin joins the Army. He does basic training at Fort Ord in Monterey Bay, California. Uh, that Fort Ord uh, would close down in 1994, by the way. January 72, Lonnie was deployed overseas, stationed with the 71st Air Defense Artillery at the Kelly Barracks in Stuttgart, uh, Stuttgart, Germany. And there, Franklin's true sexual deviance, if it didn't show up before, definitely begins to reveal itself. On April 17th, 1974, 12.30 a.m., just after midnight, 17-year-old Ingrid, on her way home from her boyfriend's place when life as she knew it took a terrible turn. She's waiting to catch a train home at the Zuffenhausen train station in Osberg, town nine miles north of Stuttgart, when three young American men in a Fiat pull up alongside her. Two of them step outside the car, ask for directions, while Ingrid is giving those directions to them, more than happy to help if she can. One of them grabs her by the shoulders, pushes her into the back seat, and piles in behind her, and they take off. Then one of the men, a man, a man who would turn out to be Lonnie Franklin, quickly holds a long, uh, foot-long, roughly, white-handled butcher knife to her throat and threatens, I'll kill you. The men drive her to an empty field where they take turns raping her, cutting her stomach, and taking pictures of it all. Fucking animals. Uh, this will go on all night. Ingrid's survival instinct tells her not to fight. She hopes being compliant will spare her life, and it may have done just that. She strikes up a conversation with Lonnie between assaults, hoping to win his sympathy. The rapes continue again until just before dawn. When it's finally over, Ingrid plays along in order to get the men to take her home. On the way home, she gives her phone number to Lonnie, hoping it will help the police uh, you catch him later. It's fucking so brave. This 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 young young girl. Uh, this would work. It would it would work because the sexual predator would actually be fucking dumb enough to call her. Local police took Ingrid's accusations extremely seriously because they had just heard about how three men fitting that same description, driving a Fiat, had attempted to grab an 18 year old girl an hour before Ingrid was abducted. Only a neighbor hearing that girl scream saved her from the same or even worse fate. The police asked Ingrid if she would set up a date with the man she'd given her number to if he called. So he does. The following evening, 
Ingrid is standing outside the Ludwigsburg station waiting for Lonnie to pick her up. Local officers, military police watching nearby. She'd been told to drop a handkerchief from her pocket once she spotted her assailant, and then the police would take over. When Lonnie approaches, she quickly throws the handkerchief to the pavement. Police move in, grab that motherfucker. Uh, when he's arrested, now 21-year-old U.S. Army Private Lonnie David Franklin Jr. had that footlong butcher knife in his boot. Just a bit incriminating. Franklin's working as a kitchen supervisor, a resident cook at that time, and obtained the rank of Specialist Fourth Class. In March of 73, he even received the 32nd Army Air Defense Command Award for Best Mess for the third and fourth quarters of 1972. But now, of course, his military career is over. Franklin taken into custody May 5th, 1974, charged with the rape and kidnapping of Ingrid and the attempted kidnapping of the 18-year-old woman who escaped. His accomplices, also in the Army, charged with the same crimes. On December 20th, 1974, a panel of judges convicts Franklin and the other two men for kidnapping and the rape of Ingrid, as well as the attempted kidnapping of the other victim. Lonnie is sentenced to three years and four months in a German prison. While in prison, May 5th, 1976, Lonnie's given a general discharge from the military after he serves his prison sentence, or, or sorry, before he finishes it, uh, yeah, in Stuttgart. I, sh I should hope he was discharged. How fucked up would that be if he wasn't? Hey, Lonnie, you're not getting kicked out of the military, bud. We think you're a great soldier. You're a fantastic kitchen supervisor, but we better not hear about the raping again. We have a serious three strikes in your out rape policy, and now you got one. So I guess, yeah, sure. I mean, you can rape one more time, but that's it. We're very strict when it comes to lots of raping. Uh, what is fucked up is the army decided against giving him a dishonorable discharge. Did not get a dishonorable discharge for that shit. Uh, why? Because that would have made it difficult for him to find city, state, or county work later. Who cares? Fuck that guy. Unreal. Kidnapping and rape plus account of attempted kidnapping and rape. And they're like, ah, oh, we don't want to make it hard for this fella to get good benefits later down the road. And he will get good benefits down the road. Uh, by the way, he will end up working for the fucking city, county. Uh, also, not the same country, I know, but I hate that he only got a little over three years for kidnapping and rape plus another count of attempted kidnapping and rape. If he were to get caught dealing a bit of crack, a tiny amount of crack, uh, in the US in the 80s, he'd get at least five years. Shaking my head. Uh, consistently infuriating how soft the world at large is when it comes to punishing sex offenders, especially with blatantly guilty, especially violent incidents like this. 1977, Lonnie gets out of German prison. He's back in South Central LA. He learned a valuable lesson from his experience abroad. When you commit a horrific crime, do not leave the victim alive to turn you in. He quickly starts attending classes at the LA Trade Technical College when he gets home, studying to become a mechanic, which he already knew all the basics of. Uh, he learned more, of course, get his degree. That would make getting a job easier. Uh, it is at this college where he meets his wife, Sylvia Lino. She's 21, he's 24. Guess he didn't tell her the truth when it came to what he'd been up to the past few years. So how is Germany, Lonnie? I've always wanted to visit. Ah, uh, not good. <laughs> not good at all for me. <laughs> uh, you rape one girl, they send you to prison for a couple of years. Fucking Germany. Hey, you want to leave this restaurant? Go to some dark alley where I can hold a knife to your throat and take some pics? Uh, these two get married in 1978, have two kids. A daughter, Crystal, is born in December of 1978. Their son, Christopher, born August of 1981. Family gets a place, not clear if they bought or rent this first place, on 111th place in South Central, uh, not far off from Crenshaw, I believe. Later, 1986, the family will buy Lonnie's childhood home when Lonnie's dad dies, a bungalow at 1728 West 81st Street, in between Western and Harvard. A couple blocks away from, a, uh, from the Golden Bird, Great Wings Joint, based on Yelp reviews, and Tumby's Pizza, also apparently solid, based on reviews, uh, just east of Inglewood. Let's take a second now to push pause in what will be his murder timeline and get to know Lonnie a little bit better before covering his crimes, his uh, future crimes. Get to know his uh, wife, Sylvia, a little bit too. 
Strangely, Lonnie will often claim to have been married before Sylvia, although this woman's name is unknown, probably because she's not real. His lie this time, not mine. When the fuck would he have had another wife while he was in a German prison? I don't buy it for a minute. This is some bullshit I feel like he made up, uh, made up, cover for the time he spent in a German prison, so I wouldn't have to explain why he was really there. None of his friends interviewed in videos I've seen seem to have known anything about his time in Germany, his crime there. Uh, instead, they all seem to, to think he briefly had a wife between leaving California to join the army and returning home because that's what this piece of shit told him. He told his buddies he hated women because of this imaginary first wife. He said she was a straight crackhead, to use his words, which does not make sense because crack did not show up until 1981 and he married Sylvia in 1978. So how the fuck was she getting crack when there was no crack to get? He told his buddies that this mystery wife spent his hard-earned money on drugs, spent it on crack instead of bills. And that's why he was now so rough on crackheads. His friends didn't know that uh, he killed these crackheads. At least, uh, you know, of course, they didn't admit that after he was, uh, you know, apprehended for that. But some of them did admit when they talked to the documentary people that he, uh, you know, he was real rough on them. Some of them knew he tortured them. One even admitted to joining in on that torture, admitted it on camera. Fucked up group of friends. Lonnie Franklin hates women. He'll likely never tell the world why. Sees uh, them as primarily fuck objects. Well, saw them. He's dead now. Uh, numerous sex workers who had sex with him were interviewed after he was arrested. They all spoke to him making strange and sadistic requests. He wanted to roughly sodomize them while they wore a collar, uh, on a leash, barked like a dog, shit like that. He wanted them to push 40-ounce malt liquor bottles inside him, stick screwdrivers up their asses, not making up those examples. And then he became enraged whenever they said no, became very verbally and physically abusive. If he wasn't already physically abusive in those examples, he was a sadist who wanted to use women like almost nobody wants to be used, like they weren't human. Several women who had uh, encounters with him, sex workers, uh, who you know said they made him feel or made he made them feel like they were not human. He made up a stupid fake wife story to try and justify all this shit. While going to trade school and afterwards, Lonnie had various jobs. He ran a gas station for a little bit, uh, worked as a patient scheduler with Veterans Affairs. That's fucked up. He got to do anything for the military after what he got discharged for. Uh, was a security guard and later a truck dri driver before a friend hired him to set up parties, do maintenance work for his entertainment company. He wanted health benefits, so he applied for a job with the city and got it in 1981. Well, it's a good thing his uh, discharge didn't hold him back. He was hired as a garage attendant at LAPD's Central Division. Fucking worked for the LAPD a few years before they'd be looking for him. Uh, he was promoted to be a mechanic helper, gave it up a year later when he accepted another government job with the city's Department of Sanitation as a garbage man. It paid better. Offered the young father more overtime hours. Well, he's getting that good city job, good county job. Uh, I, I guess it was city job. Uh, his wife, Sylvia Franklin, worked first in a legal office, then worked for the Inglewood School System, first as an administrative secretary, then as a senior clerk to the superintendent and the board. She made decent money like Lonnie did. The two were able to buy some rental properties. The family lived a nice middle-class lifestyle with plenty of disposable income, income Lonnie would use frequently on sex workers. He often tortured and sometimes killed. Sylvia has been described as a loyal wife. No one seems to have a bad thing to say about her. Devoutly Christian, felt she could not betray her husband until he was proven guilty. She stayed by his side even after he was, you know, uh, caught until he was convicted. She would visit him in jail until his conviction. A retired FBI agent said Sylvia was a strong woman with a strong belief system. who was just holding on to her husband because he was innocent until proven guilty. After Lonnie's conviction, Sylvia and the entire family took a big step back from the media. They never really spoke to the media to begin with, but then they completely disappeared. Uh, interestingly, a few of Lonnie's friends did say that the two of them lived very separate lives. Lived in the same house, but may have slept in different bedrooms and were almost never seen in public together. Lonnie did her thing, Sylvia did hers. Or Lonnie did his thing, excuse me, Sylvia did hers. Uh, she seems to have looked the other way regarding any of her husband's 
indiscretions. And what did Lonnie's neighbors think of him? Uh, well, they thought he was, a, you know, a talented birthday clown. Uh, Smacky. Smacky was at it again. He started working for Tayshaun singing telegrams again in the mid-80s. He was able to control his temper a lot more effectively, ignore the kids, fuck with him. Uh, J.K. Gosh, No, the community of South Central, you know, felt he was friendly and quiet. He worked on cars in his front yard, chatted with anyone who would walk past, liked to talk about the Lakers and the Dodgers. So I guess he wasn't totally quiet. He was quiet if you didn't know him. Uh, he was described in one source as friendly and quiet, but another source he was described as chatty. I uh, like to talk about the Lakers and the Dodgers, CSI, 48 hours. And once his crime started getting, you know, some media buzz, uh, once the Grim Sleeper moniker was thrown out there, uh, he loved to talk about the media's coverage of the Grim Sleeper. Must have gotten off on it. One woman in the neighborhood actually started avoiding Lonnie because he wouldn't shut the fuck up about the Grim Sleeper. Lonnie lived on a street of single family homes in South Central, a great street for a serial killer to live on, great neighborhood for a serial killer. His neighborhood, one of the highest homicide rates in the nation for years. Lonnie spent his entire life in his childhood home. His parents lived there. He lived there. His son, Christopher, later took ownership of the house. Neighbors thought of Lonnie as a kind and compassionate neighbor who volunteered in the community, helped elderly residents off the block, and fixed their cars for free. He went to friends' kids' high school graduation ceremonies, brought his elders' gifts on their birthdays. Although he and Sylvia had an on-again, off-again relationship for the 30 years they were married, he loved his two children dearly and was a caring father. Neighbor Yvette Williams told the Seattle Times after his arrest, his family didn't want for nothing. No one in the world is an angel when I could admire someone for taking care of his family and his home. That is an interesting perspective on a serial killer. Look, I don't like how he constantly shot and raped and strangled and sexually tortured and killed women, but no one's perfect. He was a good provider. So, you know, overall, maybe not that bad of a dude. Uh, neighbors knew that Lonnie would fix their cars for a low price, cut their lawns even put up Christmas lights for the elderly. He was seen by many as a good active father, hardworking mechanic, good neighbor, dad who spent a lot of time with the kids, especially his son, Christopher. You know, many people in the neighborhood had known Lonnie for literally his entire life outside of that German prison sentence, uh, but they didn't know the real him. Lonnie didn't fit the traditional profile of a serial killer. The majority of serial killers in America are white males between the ages of 20 and 30. At least that's when they become active. Lonnie was a black man believed to have committed his first murder at age 32. Uh, interesting stat I would like to share about this. Thanks to media coverage, I had long assumed that there were almost no black serial killers. Uh, not true. The Grim Sleeper is the first black serial killer we've covered here after covering around, I don't know, 30 serial killers or so, almost all of them white. But not because there haven't been many black serial killers out there. In reality, around 20% of American serial killers are black men and only 13.4% of the population in America is black. So the myth of the white male ser serial killer is just that, a myth. Serial killers come in all colors. Black men are just as prone to serial killing as white men. Starting late like Lonnie did, though, that is unusual. Uh, Lonnie also targeted black victims, which is atypical, at least in a media coverage sense, but maybe not in reality. A 2016 nationwide study done by some sociologists found that black murder victims received 2.8 news articles each versus 3.8 news articles for white victims. So maybe serial killers target black victims more than it appears, and we just don't hear about it. Lonnie did kill sex workers, which has been a common target for serial killers of all races since hitchhiking faded in popularity in the 70s, right? Women hanging out somewhere alone or willing to get into a car with a man they don't know that has long been the favorite target of serial killers, I mean, many of them. Uh, women who uh, these men can typically physically, you know, overpower. Uh, women whose families often don't know where they are. Again, I wish we could legalize prostitution so that sex workers would be less marginalized. The argument of just don't do it if you don't want to risk being killed by some predator is as intellectually simple and hollow as the argument of, well, just be abstinent if you don't want an unwanted pregnancy or an STD. It's a flippant, poorly thought out argument. It doesn't speak to the true complexity of human nature, 
There's some easy dismissive shit to say that doesn't actually help anyone. About as thoughtful as the parenting mandate of, because I said so. Hollow slogans. Oh, hollow slogans. And statements. Their enduring popularity may be eternal. So many seem to love that shit. Uh, Lonnie will file four injury claims that work between 1983 and 1987, the main one being a rotator cuff injury, and he will retire by 1989 at the age of 37. He'll receive monthly disability checks from the city after his accident until he's convicted of murder. At that point, his wife, Sylvia, uh, well, she'll start to receive them once he's um, in jail, but not when he's convicted. Excuse me. A lot of people would not be happy about that. Also, after being caught, his disability will be uh, called into question. Seems like he committed insurance fraud, insurance fraud in addition to his other crimes. Fake those injuries. That's crazy. Crazy that he wasn't honorable when it came to insurance. Seems like he had so much integrity. Uh, after taking his early retirement, Lonnie turned to alternate, uh, alternative ways to make money on the side, crime mostly. Lonnie's neighbors uh, described him as a small-time crook. He would get them a flat-screen TV for a deal, always had a lot of uh, car parts on hand. For a few years, he could get people all kinds of shit. Dude basically ran a retail store out of his house. He <laughs> He sold electronics, brand new speakers, computers still in their boxes, secondhand bicycles, car parts, stolen cars, flat screen TVs, all sorts of shit. Uh, it was an off the books business for items either he had stolen or more, more often, you know, bought from people who had stolen them. How could he get away with that? Well, because, you know, crime of that kind was just very much tolerated in his neighborhood. And there was a strong, uh, don't snitch ever, very much spoken rule in his neighborhood. In the main documentary I watched to immerse myself with this topic, a, a white British man interviews lots of black South Central residents who had run-ins with their new Lonnie. And numerous times he asked them like, well, why didn't you report this? Why didn't you report that to the police? And without fail, they either look at him like he's fucking crazy to even suggest that, or they straight up laugh at the absurdity of that question. A few speak to how basically being a snitch is the worst thing you can fucking be. And when no one will report anything to the police, that is how you get a house on your street that has a black market, you know, mini Best Buy basically inside of it. That is so funny for me to envision. I picture some public access commercial for Lonnie's Electronics, Car Parts, and more Superstore. Hey, friends. If you live in South Central and know how to keep your mouth shut, come to Lonnie's house this week. No earlier than noon. No later than 5 p.m. Not on the weekends. Do not show up when Sylvia's home. If you see her dots in the driveway, you keep on driving, friends. Stores closed. This week, Lonnie has a new Apple IIe. Retails for $1,400 at Fry's Electronics. It's yours for $300. No box, no power cord, no questions. We also have a large assortment of car batteries. All batteries, just $10 each. Cash only, no refunds. What about some new Cordovan white wall tires? Full set for only $50. Larry's AutoZone on Crenshaw. Selling the exact same tires for $130. (laughs) At least they were. They might be out of them right now, though. You hear what I'm saying? Finally, we have a Beretta Minx 22 short automatic pistol. Only $80. Mickey's Pond tried to sell the exact same gun yesterday for 150 right before they were robbed. I mean, <laughs> the exact same gun. You get it. So come on over to Lonnie's Electronics Car Parts and More Superstore. Where is Lonnie's store located? Well, if you don't know Lonnie, where he lives, it's on the corner of none of your business. And fuck you, snitch. Don't ask around. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. Uh, Lonnie's neighborhood is full of a lot more crime than his house store. A lot of the same neighbors who were uh, helping elderly residents with the Christmas lights, looking out for one another. We're also uh, drug dealers, crack addicts, gangsters, sex workers, etc. Interesting local culture. Uh, everyone had their own problems. They didn't have any interest in possibly making life a lot harder for themselves if anyone found out they were a snitch. They didn't want anyone snitching on them. Uh, one of the dudes in the doc I watched got his ass beat halfway through the documentary. Middle-aged man got jumped by several dudes just for talking to the filmmakers about Lonnie maybe being the Grim Reaper after he'd been arrested. 
Uh, Lonnie had a lot of people in the neighborhood who remained loyal to him after his arrest. They made money off him for years. He offered uh, what he called easy insurance jobs to him, paid people to burn cars, get rid of other items. One man would later tell a reporter about a time Lonnie hired him to burn a car. Inside the car, he found women's clothing covered in blood. He said on camera, he didn't think anything of it at the time and just completed the job. Bullshit. He didn't think anything of it. He probably assumed someone fucking got murdered. You know, but he wanted the money and he didn't want to snitch and he probably didn't want to die. If he snitches, it might, you know, legitimately be his bloody clothes in the back of somebody, some other van, some other car. Well, Lonnie seems to have had a reputation as being a nice guy who dabbled in quite a bit of crime. Uh, most of the people who said that on camera were other dudes. Maybe every single person who said that was a dude when I really think about it. A lot of women interviewed after he was arrested, but before he was convicted, wouldn't say that they thought he was guilty of being the grim sleeper, but they did talk about how he was a very known perv. A lot of the men who knew him admitted, you know, uh, his encounters with women could be dicey, that he was overtly promiscuous, as one man said. And when a woman didn't want to do what he wanted, a lot of guys did readily admit that he became pretty hostile. A lot of his guy friends knew about his pictures, uh, so many pictures, so many explicit nudes. One of Lonnie's friends, a man named Albert Shelby, recalled that once when he was riding around with Lonnie, he popped open his glove box, pulled out a fat stack of nude pictures of women. He didn't think much of it at the time, he said. Several other old friends talked about how Lonnie had so many pictures of naked women, about how he loved to show them off to other dudes, real explicit shots of women sometimes. Parts of him would be in the photos too. I'm guessing you can figure out which parts, just never his face. Some of his friends had pics too. They'd pass them around. It was a whole thing. There was almost always, uh, you know, they were, they were almost always, excuse me, pictures of local crack-addicted sex workers. He had quite the collection of panties as well. South Central resident Yvette Williams was getting her car fixed by Lonnie when he said he wanted to show her something and then he showed her a box filled with women's underwear. She didn't say what uh, he said when he showed those to her. I'm, I'm guessing it was probably some kind of dirty solicitation, something real clever. How about you don't worry about what you owe me for your car? You just give me those panties instead. And once they're off, how about I stick my dick in there? You know, maybe take a few pics. Probably something real smooth like that. Uh, multiple neighbors reported to the Seattle, Seattle Times and other outlets that Lonnie hired sex workers regularly. Some said every week. Uh, he talked about them uh, very negatively, though. Called them crackheads. A local woman named Frances Williams told the paper he was a nice guy, but a freaky old man. He just talked nasty. He said he'd get women to do strange things in strange places with him. Nick Broomfield and Mark Hoferlin, producers of the documentary Tales of the Grim Sleeper. That's a doc I, I will refer to here and there, this episode, uh, where most of the interviews I'm referring to came from. They went around to Lonnie's neighborhood interviewing all kinds of people who knew him. They interviewed three of his closest friends, uh, Steve, Gary, and Richard. Gary told Bloomfield and Lonnie, or that Lonnie, once showed him a 25 automatic as well. He always kept it in uh, either his pants pocket or a front shirt pocket. He recalled a time when he saw handcuffs fall out of Lonnie's car as well. Lonnie also showed him naked pictures of a lot of random women. Talked about how, uh, you know, uh, he talked about how Lonnie would tell him that he should try and get the reward money offered for the capture of the Grim Sleeper. Gary questioned Lonnie about the gun, knowing the Grim Reaper or Sleeper used a 25 automatic and he laughed. Gary said, it was like he was letting me see these things. It was like, maybe he was feeling guilty and he wanted me to get the reward. Or maybe he just got off on fucking hiding in plain sight, just flaunting this shit and still getting away with it. Uh, Richard told Broomfield that one time he and Lonnie were driving around looking for a car to steal. And then Lonnie spotted a girl and he flipped. They passed her. Lonnie pulled over. He got out, ran to the girl, grabbed her by her hair, pulled her over to the car. When she screamed for help, Richard said he told Lonnie to let her go and that, and that Lonnie then caught his senses and did let her go. And then uh, a bunch of, you know, police came over to the car, but they were, they were let go. Uh, Greg and Richard also took graphic sexual photos of women like Lonnie, but weren't committed to it like he was, according to them. Lonnie always kept a camera, a tripod, and a mattress inside his van where he did most of his work, according to his old buddies. 
Richard told Bloomfield that Lonnie paid him four times to clean the carpet of that van. And he remembered cleaning out a stain looked like oil, but darker, uh, maybe easier to get out than oil. Never directly said he thought it was blood, but clearly infers it. It was, come on, it's fucking blood. The woman only identified as Pam, a former sex worker, crack addict, and South Central local, also spoke a lot about Lonnie with these documentarians. Without Pam, no, would have been, no one would have been willing to talk to Broomfield uh, out of fear of, you know, uh, you know, being snitches, being seen as snitches. When the dock opens up and Broomfield and Hoferlin walk up to Lonnie's old house, a neighbor man starts aggressively and repeatedly screaming at them, calling them Peckerwoods, telling them to get the white asses out of the hood. Pam explains to them that the neighbors are probably suspicious that they're undercover law enforcement. Pam also got a lot of girls Lonnie used to pay for, uh, to have sex with, to talk to the producers, like uh, Della Sean. Della, one of the women in Lonnie's collection of Polaroids, one of the rare girls who is uh, not now a confirmed murder victim or missing. And how creepy is this? Lonnie took her photo when she was asleep and dating Lonnie's son, Christopher, when they were both in high school. She spent many days in his house, went on vacations with Christopher and Lonnie, knew the entire family. Della told Broomfield that Lonnie was a horny old man. That was just how everyone viewed him, a horny old man. She said that when she was with Christopher in his bedroom, as in having sex when they're in high school, she could hear Lonnie in the hall listening to them outside the door. What the fuck? I wonder if that perv was taking notes, maybe giving advice to his teen son afterwards. Christopher would later say that his dad and him were best friends. Just, you know, just taking him aside later, being like, hey, dude, you got you to slow your thrust down when you first get going. I, I, I keep hearing you. I keep hearing you start too fast. We've been talking about that. That's why she never finishes. You got to pop out sometimes, switch over to your hands. You know what I'm saying? Maybe slap the head, slow it down a bit. This whole race is not a sprint. You got to save that for the last 20 yards, right? You understand? So fucking creepy. Della recalled seeing porn mags uh, all over the house. Well, no, I'm sorry, not all over the house, but in Lonnie's portions of the house, like in the bathroom next to the toilet. She remembered a, a shoebox full of nude pictures Lonnie passed around to his friends once in front of her. Dude was sexually obsessed, like most of these sexually sadistic murderous creeps seem to be. Della also recalled that Lonnie uh, had three cell phones. He said one was for business, one was personal, and one was for, quote, hoes and crackheads. What the fuck was his wife doing during all this? Sounds like she just, you know, was uh, real happy to just uh, look the other way. She was real heavy into church, almost never home. Also, their home was apparently segmented up somehow where, uh, where like she, she had her domain in the house. He had his. Uh, he also had like the garage in the backyard and Sylvia never went to some of these places. She'd also go stay with friends for days at a time, right? They were on again, off again. No one says why. And she has never spoken to reporters about her relationship with Lonnie. Uh, she was gone so much, people again wondered if they were actually married. Just constantly avoiding her life with him. And I guess to be fair to her, maybe fucking scared of him. Scary dude. Maybe word that if she told him, you know, uh, if they didn't arrest him, she would disappear like so many of the women he picked up did. Who knows? Della and Lana's Christopher once borrowed uh, Lonnie's church van. Why did he have access to the church van? Uh, and they found Polaroid pictures and lace underwear in the glove box there. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he had to have panties and fucking Polaroids everywhere. He thought it was strange, but assumed it just belonged to one of the sex workers that Lonnie liked to hire. Okay, now that I've taken a little detour, painted a general picture of what a fucking creep this guy was, what people in the neighborhood seem to think of Lonnie, now that we know a bit more about him as an adult and his marriage, let's back go back to the timeline of the Grim Sleeper investigation, picking up in 1984, shortly before Lonnie started to kill, when several other area serial killers were already active. In 1984, the LAPD formed a 49-member task force to try and catch who they were calling at the time Southside Slayer. In the early 80s, police had discovered several women's bodies dumped in alleys and dumpsters in South Central. The LA Sheriff's Department and Police Department investigated the murders, and initially they thought the murders were committed by one individual, that mystery killer they dubbed the Southside Slayer. 
The LA Weekly said the Southside Slayer was a mythical evil single force who at one point was suspected in at least 20 other slains in the country. Christine Pelisek, an LA Times writer who also wrote a fantastic account of Lonnie's life and crimes titled The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Woman of South Central, a book Time magazine called one of the best true crime books of all time. Uh, we leaned on it heavily in the research for this episode. Uh, she later wrote for the Times. I suspect that there were six separate serial killers prowling that 51 square mile area. They were all hunting the same game. Poor black women desperate to score the next hit of the highly addictive crack cocaine that was ravaging the working class neighborhoods. Uh, the task force to catch the Slayer was led by John St. John, nicknamed Jigsaw John, after working as a, uh, after working a dismemberment murder in Griffith Park, where he had to literally piece a victim's multiple body parts back together to solve the crime. I got St. John will retire in 1993, a highly decorated detective known for solving a lot of cases others couldn't. He was uh, most known for happen helping catch serial killers. He pursued pursued a dozen of them. Uh, excuse me, over the course of his career. St. John would really have his hands full with the Southside Slayer murders, uh, which would quickly become known as the Southside Slayer, Slayers murders, plural. Over the following years, it was found that another black serial killer, Lewis Crane, committed at least four of the so-called Southside Slayer murders. He was convicted of four murders in 1989, then died of AIDS in prison later that same year. Serial killer Michael Hughes, also black, killed at least seven Southside women, currently on death row, been in prison since 1993, Another former military guy, uh, investigators think he may have also killed additional women while stationed in Michigan and Maryland. Daniel Lee Siebert, a white dude, swung through South Central in 1985 to kill two women. He killed somewhere between 10 and 13 between 1979 and 1986, traveled around the country uh, before you know going to prison in Alabama and dying there in, in 2008. Chester Turner, another black man convicted of killing 15 women, most of them in South Central, between 1987 and 1998. Damn. His nickname became the Southside Slayer, a suspected of killing God knows how many more. Been sitting on death row since 2003. Still a very angry dude. Just a couple years ago, he uh, got sentenced, when he got sentenced to a few more murders that, you know, added up to the 15, uh, he just screamed like, I'll be back and a bunch of profanity as he like walked out of the courtroom. Uh, Ivan Hill, still not done, yet another black serial killer targeting women, uh, a man who earned the nickname the 60 Freeway Killer. Killed at least nine women between 1979 and 1994, at least one of them in South Central. Almost all the victims of these killers, young black female sex workers struggling with crack addiction. Uh, in addition, some of the murders attributed to the Southside Slayer originally may have been committed individually by various women's pimps or clients or gang members unrelated to any serial killer. Holy shit. A lot of uproar made the documentary about why couldn't the LAPD catch this dude? Well, I think you can see how the case of the Grim Sleeper was very fucking difficult. Happened to be a lot of predators roaming the streets of South Central in the 80s, 90s, preying on sex workers during a vicious crack epidemic. In early September 1985, St. John and the team thought they'd caught a big break in the Southside Slayer case. Three black sex workers were attacked. Two of them were giving information to the police. By 1987, they found ballistic evidence linking at least five of the murders to the same 25 caliber handgun. And thus, you know, one person. Then in 1988, a victim contacted them about an attack and her description matched some of the other cases. The task force would work for two years, receive over 5,000 tips, offer a $25,000 reward, but eventually all their leads would dry up and they would end their operation. Why didn't any of their leads lead them to the Grim Sleeper? For a lot of reasons, as I've laid out, but part of it was, you know, a large part of it, I'd have to say that again, people living in Lonnie's neighborhood just didn't snitch those who could have really helped catch him. They didn't talk to the cops. 
Now that we uh, have an overview of all the sex worker killing that was going on in South Central when the Grim Sleeper was most active, let's get into some of the murders he specifically would later be charged with right after a sponsor break. I'd rather pause here than pause in the middle of the descriptions of Lonnie's homicides. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back 
because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to our uh, sponsors and supporters, Meat Sacks. Appreciate you supporting our sponsors, uh, the support our show as well. Apparently, I just wanted to see how many times I could say support in that sentence. On August 10th, 1985, Lonnie killed his first known victim, Deborah Jackson, age 29. Probable part-time sex worker, definite full-time mother and human being. Deborah was born in 1956 and her life was far from easy. Born into poverty, she'd had her first child at only 14, 14, still a kid herself. And in her lifetime, she would have three children. She moved to LA in the 80s to take care of her grandma. Deborah was a loving and devoted mother, but she lost custody of her kids when she began struggling with an addiction to crack. Fucking crack! So much crack in this episode. 1985, Deborah worked in South Central as a cocktail waitress. She was dating a woman named Beatrice Mason, 29-year-old army nurse. Right before she was killed, Beatrice was planning to break up with Deborah because she had stolen her money to buy some crack. Deborah was a cosmetology student before her final relapse. She'd just gotten back from rehab when she moved in with Beatrice, got a job as a waitress. And then when she relapsed, it's believed she occasionally started turning tricks to feed her addiction. A few days before she was killed, this is so fucking sad, Deborah's kids had escaped from their foster home to find their mom, and they did find her. And then Deborah sent them back to the foster home and told them, we'll be together soon. When I get you back, we're going to be at Big Ma's house. And then they never saw their mom alive again. Fuck. My God, that is a childhood memory no kid should ever have. Uh, Deborah took a bus after visiting a friend, and she never made it back home. Her body was found three days after she took off, laying in an alley near West Gage Avenue in the Vermont Slauson area. Just left out in the alley like some trash because that's how the grim sleeper saw her. She was found laying underneath a carpet with her hand poking out. She'd been shot three times in the chest. The police initially accused Beatrice of killing Deborah, but with a strong alibi, she's quickly cleared as a suspect. Deborah's murder gets little attention, like little media attention. Why? Because LA had so many fucking murders in the 80s. There were too many to keep track of. And because papers didn't want to only talk about murders and other murders came across as more sensational. When Deborah was found, another serial killer had already begun to dominate L.A. area headlines. Dale uh, Okazaki and Maria Hernandez's bodies had just been found, early victims of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. South Central wasn't the only part of L.A. dealing with sadistic maniacs. Dale and Maria were roommates attacked in their home. Hernandez would survive barely after being shot in the face when she pulled into her own garage. Okazaki got shot in her own kitchen. We went all over this a few years ago and we sucked that evil, candy-loving fuck. Uh, his victims got a lot of press because unlike the sleepers' victims, they were not out working the streets. They were not smoking crack. They had not made choices that, you know, put them in harm's way. They certainly were not, you know, asking to be murdered, the grim sleeper victims, but they were not minding their own business in the supposed safety of their homes like uh, Ramirez victims, Dale and Maria and others. 
and then Ramirez got him anyway. Why do attacks like that get the most press? Well, partly because I think they're the most relatable. And we like relatable stories because I think we're, you know, uh, primarily a selfish species. A lot of LA media readership were horrified by the Night Stalker attacks because it felt like he could attack them. And that made their, you know, his attacks scarier. Fear sells. Uh, with the Grim Sleeper attacks, you could tell yourself, well, as long as I don't walk the streets and sell my body and smoke crack, he won't get me. So he's less scary to more people. Doesn't make the coverage disparity right, but newspapers are not nonprofits. They need an audience to make money and sales stats have proven over and over again that audiences buy shit that speaks more directly to them personally. Ramirez will be captured on August 31st this same year. Then his trial will dominate all the news outlets in the city. Deborah's murder, while not getting much press, does begin a pattern that will eventually, many years later, help lead to Lonnie's arrest. He'll use that same 25 caliber gun to kill almost all his victims. It wasn't until 1988 that the police realized Deborah's murder was connected to a serial killer. Unfortunately, it took the LAPD almost 25 years to catch the right man. Lonnie would, upon his convictions for murder, take the title of the longest operating serial killer west of the Mississippi, longer than the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. All his victims murdered by either shooting or strangulation, and their bodies would be found in close proximity to Lonnie's house. Deborah's murder was the beginning of a series of killings involving a firearm that police initially called the Strawberry Murders. A uh, pretty derogatory strawberry slang term for women who used sex work to buy drugs, specifically uh, crack, selling their strawberries for crack. Uh, clearly, the name for these murders conveyed how a lot of officers saw the victims. They weren't really human. They were crackheads selling strawberries. That's how many in the neighborhood saw them as well. NHI, no human involved. Black South Central sex workers, particularly those addicted to crack, were fucking terrified in the mid and late 80s. Of course they were. So many of them disappearing. How many will never actually know, but anecdotally, it sounds like hundreds. On September 23rd, 1985, the task force reveals the name Southside Slayer to the public. Later, the LAPD will realize, as I mentioned, that there were numerous serial killers roaming the South Central streets, but they will not reveal this for many uh, additional years, and then they will be criticized for not revealing that. Uh, sadly, when they initially reveal that they are hunting the Southside Slayer, they are not bombarded with good tips, right? Don't snitch. Not even when a serial killer or serial killers are, you know, killing young women left and right in your neighborhood, I guess. Seems like that would be a good time to, you know, kind of break that rule. August 12th, 1986, Lonnie murders his next known victim, Henrietta Wright, age 35. She was born in 1951. She was another mother, had five kids. Before her life fell apart, shortly before her death, she worked during the day as a cafeteria worker for the LA Unified School District and worked nights as a cocktail waitress. Then a fire destroyed her house, all her belongings. She was forced to move in with one of her sisters. Her life again, not easy. After the fire, when it felt like the world was out to get her, she became extremely depressed and soon looking for some escape, any escape from her life and her problems, she started to abuse drugs. And her favorite drug soon, of course, became that highly addictive crack. Eventually, her stepdad kicked her out for smoking crack. And then she started staying with friends or at hourly motels with Johns. Started turning tricks to feed her habit. Then not long after starting to work the streets, Henrietta disappeared on the night of August 12th and her body was found the next morning. She was found near the 2500 block of West Vernon Avenue in Hyde Park. Left dead in an alley again, tossed out like the fucking trash again. Been shot twice in the chest, wrapped in a blanket, covered with the mattress. January 10th, 1987, the third grim sleeper victim's body, the body of Barbara Ware, literally found in some trash. Her remains found under a pile of trash in the 1300 block of East 56th Street in the central Alameda area. She'd been shot once in the chest. Lonnie loved shooting women in the chest. She's only 23. And again, hard life. Barbara's mom had died when she was just a kid. She got into trouble when she was in middle school. Uh, by the time she turned 20, she was already estranged from her family, struggling with an addiction to crack. 
Before she ran into the grim sleeper, she'd already attempted suicide because of depression and lost custody of her daughter. She had recently agreed to go to rehab again to regain custody of her kid, got a job as a waitress. She was on the right track for a bit, then relapsed. Her dad had just cut her off financially. That was the last time any of the family saw her. Although it wouldn't be revealed, revealed until years later, a man witnessed someone dumping Barbara's body into the alley where, it was, where she was found. He insisted on remaining anonymous. The call transcript reads, a murder or dead body or something. Uh, the address is 1346 East 56th Street in the alley. Someone threw her out. The only thing that's hanging out of this, like you threw a gas tank on top of her and, uh, and uh, only thing you can see out is her feet. The guy that dropped it off was driving a white and blue Dodge van and then he provided the license plate number. 1PZP746. When asked who he was, he said, oh, I'm staying anonymous. I know too many people. Okay, then. Bye-bye. Finally, someone snitches, I guess. Some people believe that Lonnie, though, made this 911 call because maybe he felt guilty. Eh, I'm not sure I believe that. Uh, the police did investigate. The van was registered to the Cosmopolitan Church, local Pentecostal church, but the police did not find enough evidence on the van to bring anyone in, and the tip led to no suspects. The van was likely the van Lonnie used to dump Barbara's body. He had driven it. Uh, he, ha he had a lot of other people associated with the church had. Lonnie's wife, Sylvia, a member of the church this time. Was Barbara a sex worker? Sounds like it was uh, suspected she was turning some occasional tricks for money to buy crack. Many of these victims, not full-time sex workers. They're waitresses, worked at, you know, the school, had other various jobs, but they were addicted to crack. And their jobs didn't give them enough money to buy all the crack they wanted. And when the money that they earned from the straight job ran out, they got desperate. And being addicted to crack does make it hard to hold down a full-time job and often they were, you know, constantly in between jobs. And so they would sell their bodies to get high. I told you this was going to feel like an anti-crack PSA. On April 15th, 1987, the body of 25-year-old Bernita Spark is found in a dumpster on the 9400 block of Southwestern Avenue in Gramercy Park. Had her body made it to the landfill, likely she would just be among hundreds of missing women from the area, not a known murder victim. Two men found her remains, called the police. She'd been shot, strangled, beaten, punched in the head and face numerous times, been shot in the chest like the others with that 25 from close range. Bernita's mother, Eva Beard, last person who saw her. She and Bernita were together until 10.30 p.m. on April 15th. Bernita told her she had just gotten a new job as a, caf as a cafeteria worker at a local elementary school. Excited to start the, that following Monday. Bernita told her mom she's going to go buy some cigarettes and then never seen again. Was she also a sex worker? At least sometimes, maybe, maybe not in this case. Uh, crack was found in her system during her autopsy. A woman named Rosa Harris did provide the police some details after this murder. She woke up to the sounds of a woman screaming, then saw a slim black man leaving the alley near her house. So another snitch. I like it. I like liking these snitches when they do show up. Uh, but her description was too vague to lead to any suspects. October 1st, 1987, Halloween night. Mary Lowe's 26-year-old body found in an alley in the 8900 block of Western Avenue in Gramercy Park. Mary left home to go to a Halloween party, never came back. She was a known sex worker, crack addict in the area. On Halloween night, her friend uh, was having a party at a bar. She went. She called her off again, on again, boyfriend, man named Gino at 1145 to ask for a ride, but he said no. Then at 1.15 a.m., one of Mary's friends saw her leave the club where the party was with two black men. And then 10 a.m. the next day, a father and his nine-year-old son are walking to the alley and they find her body laying amidst some trash. Always the fucking trash. Shot in the fucking chest with that 25 again. Her body, like all other grim sleepers' uh, bodies thus far, appeared to have been dressed after death. Lonnie would have sex with these women before killing them, then put their clothes back on except for their panties, which investigators think he kept as trophies. We know he had sex with them because he left his DNA all over these crime scenes. And I said sex, not rape, because it's impossible to say whether or not the sex started off as consensual. 
since he likely paid them or at least promised to pay them for sex. Crack pipe found in Mary's purse near her body. Autopsy revealed she had, you know, crack cocaine in her system. January 30th, 1988. Another victim found. Uh, Lacricka Jefferson, age 22. Her body is found with a napkin over her face. The napkin has the word AIDS written on it. Her body's found in the 2000 block, West 102nd place in the Westmont area. Uh, poor Lacricka's murder overshadowed in the news by the murder of Karen Toshima. It just happened in the predominantly white and affluent neighborhood of Westwood. With a big promotion to work and a big Super Bowl coming up the next day, Karen Toshima and her boyfriend, uh, Eddie Poon, were in, celebrator- in a celebratory mood on a Saturday night, January 30th, 1988. They hit the shops along busy Broxton Avenue near the UCLA campus, campus and then in a violent flash, uh, they turned out to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Two rival Black Street gangs, the Rolling 60s Crips from South Central and the Mansfield Hustler Crips, had come face-to-face in a video arcade. The angry confrontation quickly spilled out onto the streets where Tashima and Poon happened to be walking. Hustler member Tyrone Swain, certain the Rolling 60s were responsible for a recent drive-by attempt on his life, strode towards his rivals, snarling and taunting. Rolling 60s Crips gangster uh, Daryl DeWitt Baby Rock Collins, or Darrell DeWitt Baby Rock Collins, then pulled a 38 caliber handgun out of his coat pocket, opened fire, the bullets flew by Swain. One of them struck Toshima in the temple. The 27-year-old graphic artist rushed to UCLA Medical Center, declared dead at 11 the next morning. Toshima's murder drew a quick and passionate response, not only in LA, but across the country. The press covered the shit out of this attack because, again, it felt like it could happen to anybody. Much more relatable to a lot of people than what happened to Lakrika. And because of a strong racial bias as well, more on that in a second, Local politicians were outraged that gang members had opened fire in the popular Westwood moving restaurant district and that they'd killed an innocent bystander. Los Angeles Councilman Zev Yaroslavsky, whose district included Westwood, proposed that the city offer a $25,000 reward for info leading to the suspect in the senseless shooting. After Tashima's murder, police patrols in Westwood tripled more than 30 officers assigned to catch her killer. LAPD brought in more than 40 people for questioning. And by the end of the week, baby Rock Collins was in custody. Community activists back down in South Central fucking outraged. They felt that nothing was being done to help the victims of gang violence in South Central, but now that the violence spilled into a wealthy white neighborhood, politicians were demanding action and an arrest was quickly made, right? They're not wrong. Of the 205 gang killings in LA in 1987, more than half occurred in South Central. Innocent bystanders accounted for approximately a third of the gang-related homicide deaths there. One of them, a nine-year-old boy, DeAndre Brown, playing in a sandbox when he's hit and killed by a stray bullet. Why wasn't his murder covered? He wasn't smoking crack. He wasn't turning tricks. He wasn't living a dangerous life, getting into strangers' cars. He wasn't in a gang. He was at home, playing. He got shot and killed. And his murder got very little media attention. Why? Probably because he was black and lived in a neighborhood considered by many to be the ghetto. So he wasn't relatable to many in white America. Racial bias. If I was his family, neighbor, just lived anywhere in South Central, yeah, I'd be fucking pissed too. Uh, The coverage disparity signaled all too clearly that the media, perhaps the nation at large, has valued the lives of South Central black citizens a little less than a non-black living in a nice neighborhood. Just a few hours before Karen Tashima was killed, LaCricka Jefferson murdered and dumped in an alley. The media never released any info on her. Uh, LaCricka was, like uh, other victims, struggling with crack addiction. Her mom, Wanda Hutton, had warned her to stay off the streets. LaCricka's dream at one time was to be a pediatrician, but then her life took a different turn. She was living in Kansas with her dad, then moved back to L.A. a few years before 1988. Her life soon became centered around partying and smoking that devil fucking crack. Crack! So much crack! Her crack addiction led her to getting into cars with strange men, doing whatever they asked so she could get more money for more crack. The last person to see her live outside of Lonnie Franklin was her friend Jody Gatewood. The crick had come to Jody's apartment, 9.30 p.m. 
left two hours later at 1130. And this is going to, this next little section is going to speak to how powerful crack addiction is. Uh, an hour after that, she hears, uh, Jody hears loud voices outside, sees the cricket in the passenger seat of a white Mercedes. She's arguing with the driver who won't let her out of the car. The cricket escaped, ran into Jody's apartment, tells Jody the man had, hold a, had been holding a knife to her neck. Uh, Lakrika should have obviously stayed inside after that, but crack started calling, so powerfully addictive, and she left the apartment again at 5.30 a.m. to go find some crack. She's dead four hours later. 9.20 a.m., Bertha Johnson finds her body under a mattress in an alley. Neighbor hears, uh, had heard her scream, call, saw the body, uh, called the police. Did the same man who, uh, you know, held a knife to her neck, you know, get her? Or was she frightened by one predator and then killed by another? Who knows? Like many of the other victims, uh, she's found dressed but with no underwear and with a crack pipe in her possession. So not, not sure if Lonnie was that first guy or not. She'd been shot in the chest with 25. So we know he was the second guy. On September 11th, 1988, Alicia Monique Alexander's body found in an alley near 43rd Place in Western Avenue in Vermont Square, killed while going to the, killed while going to the local liquor store. Only 18. On the last day of her life, she'd woken up. Uh, her dad to ask if he wanted anything from A&A's liquor store. He told her, no, I don't want anything, baby. All I want is for you to come home. So fucking sad. Hour later, Mary Alexander notices her daughter has not come home yet. She wouldn't come home, you know, the rest of the day. Monique had run away before, but she'd always come back within 24 hours. Her parents are worried. Uh, they call her brother, Donnell, who insisted she'll be home soon. She was generally a good kid. She was a nurturing, loving girl. Liked to take care of her younger sister. She enjoyed, enjoyed drawing, ballet, riding horses ice skating, going to the beach with her friends, you know, good middle-class life, and then fucking crack started calling. Don't smoke crack. When she started smoking the crack, she dropped out uh, her senior year of high school. Uh, you know, crack told her that school didn't matter. Started dating a local 28-year-old you know, year old married dude who also liked crack. She got into a fight with her brother just days before being murdered for taking his rental car for a joyride to probably go find some crack. Her parents hoped her current behavior was just a phase and that she would grow out of it, but Crack was not having that shit. Because Crack's always like, no, 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 no one gets it. Come on, they're just jealous. Just smoke me. Smoke me and you'll feel better. Just keep smoking. Six days after she went missing, four boys found her body in an alley. They were walking a dog when the dog started digging near a mattress. The mattress pad fell over. They saw a foot poking out. A man named Douglas Booker then called the police. Monique's parents are, of course, devastated. Her father wondered, how could they kill her on my watch? Her brother Donnell had recently robbed someone during a drug deal. He thought they killed Monique for revenge initially. He said, for the longest time, I thought I got my sister killed. She'd been shot in the chest under the left breast. Autopsy toxicology report came back to reveal, you know, of course, cocaine in her system. Clear to detectives that one man had killed these seven women. The killer's signature stretched beyond the 25 caliber gun. All seven victims had been shot in the chest in an almost identical location. From the angle of the bully, oh, my God, from the angle. Of the bullet, entry points. It appeared the killer was sitting to the left of his victims when he fired, that he was real close to them. Southside Slayer Detective Richard Harrow figured that each of the victims sit in the passenger seat of the car when the shots were fired. In Monique's case, as with other victims, it appeared the gun had been placed either directly on or very near the skin. With Monique's death, Harrow had a new significant clue to add to the mix, a witness. Thank God, someone else finally starting to really snitch here. Uh, someone had seen her get into either a 1974 or 1975 Ford Pinto or Chevrolet Vega, dark brown or rust in color with a loud muffler at 11 p.m. on September 6th on the southeast corner of 69th and Normandy. The car side or rear windows were tinted or covered by a curtain. The witness noticed what appeared to be a spot on the right front fender, possibly due to a repair job, and an object hanging from the rear view mirror or lying on the dash. 
A bulletin as well as a sketch of these car types when it was sent out to all Vice and patrol units, but nothing came back. Possible Lonnie kept his Pinto in the garage and out of sight most of the time. Just over two months later, police finally get their truly, uh, their first truly big break in this case. A victim who lives. Someone Lonnie attacked, tried to kill, didn't kill. She would describe the suspect's car as an orange Ford Pinto. Let's meet her on November 20th, 1988. Lonnie shot and raped 30-year-old Anitra Washington, only confirmed survivor of his attacks as far as his later trial will go. However, numerous other women will uh, give interviews in that Grim Sleeper documentary claiming they had also been attacked by Lonnie at different points in time. Uh, Anitra's testimony years later will go a long ways towards making sure Lonnie is, uh, you know, sent to prison with no hope of getting out. Anitra shot by a man with a 25 automatic. Her bullet wounds, the bullet found lodged in her chest, matched with the other women whose cases had gone cold. She gave the police the first description of Lonnie, but she didn't know his name. Not at that time. She told the police that the man pulled up alongside her in an orange Ford Pinto, offered her a ride. She said no. And then the man responded, quote, that's what's wrong with all you black women. People can't be nice to you. You think you're all that. Anitra said she then felt sorry for this fucking asshole, uh, accepted his ride. She was also working the streets this time and no surprise here, addicted to crack. That added to her incentive to get into the car. While sitting in the passenger seat talking to him, she felt blood coming from her chest all of a sudden. She says she doesn't remember being shot. She thinks she may have passed out for a moment in shock after being shot. Then when she recovers, she suddenly realizes she'd been shot, asked why the, why the man did it, you know, asked him. He said it was because she disrespected him. He then pushes her out of the car, rapes her, takes some pictures, leaves her for dead. Anitra incredibly lives. She is tough as fuck. She manages to get to a friend's house and they drive to the hospital. And then she contacts the police and tells her story. If it wasn't for her and the info she gave police, Lonnie might not have ever been caught. Uh, and Nitra had no idea. Well, he probably would have for reasons I'll explain later, but this definitely helps. Helps uh, seal his conviction. Uh, Nitra had no idea she'd almost been murdered by a serial killer. 21 years later, March of 2009, Nitra has an interview with investigative journalist Christine Pelisek from LA Weekly. We met Christine. This is the first time her statement was made public. And Nitra described her attacker as a black man in his early 30s. He looked neat, tidy, kind of geeky wore a black polo shirt tucked into khaki trousers. Thin, neat, polite, well-groomed African-American guy. The man was driving an orange Ford Pinto with a white racing stripe in the hood. She said it looked like a Hot Wheels car. After he smarted off to her, she accepted a ride, got in the car, impressed by the car's interior. The gear shift handle was memorable, she said, pimped out with a ping pong-sized marble ball. The inside was all white, with white diamond patterned upholstery. Damn it! Too bad the story wasn't publicized. On local news stations back in 88, so many good details. Right, more racial and really uh, economic bias here. Anitra was a poor black woman addicted to crack in South Central. If she'd been a rich white woman, not addicted to shit in Brentwood, her story would have been given all kinds of coverage. This is a bummer. It's a big fucking bummer. If they could have gotten that info out about a very distinctive car, maybe they would have caught Lonnie. There's no fucking way the streets of South Central were flooded with orange Ford Pintos back in 88. They stopped making those pieces of shit. 1980, after only a decade of production, uh, they were never really wildly popular because they were notoriously dangerous and unreliable. When they got rear-ended, uh, you know, some bad gas tank placement and design led all too often to explosions. Slight drawback to that model of car. And they're fucking ugly. Sorry, Pinto lovers, but you have to know most people feel that way. I'm surprised this big gearhead Lonnie was driving this Pinto. Anitra uh, told Lonnie, driver of the Pinto, she was going to a party. He invited himself, but said he first needed to stop at his uncle's house. They then wound around through re residential roads in his sporty little car, ended up on a street whose name she didn't take note of. And then uh, he parked outside a mustard-colored house, partly obscured by the hedges, got out, walked up to the house, briefly talked to someone inside, returned about 10 minutes later. He and Anitra argued then. He suddenly pulled out a small handgun out of his pocket, 
on the driver's side of the Pinto, shot her in the chest as he drove along the residential streets. She blacked out, but was startled awake by the bright flash of the camera. The man had taken her picture, sexually assaulted her. She remembers grabbing at him. The two struggled. She pleaded to be taken to a hospital. He refused. Despite her half-conscious condition, she's almost certain he told her he couldn't take her to a hospital because he didn't want to get caught. So more details of what I went over a moment ago. She told the police she thought she knew where he lived, uh, but at the time of the attack, it was dark. Despite it being dark, uh, Anitra almost led police directly to his house. She was so fucking close. She was off by two houses. Two! And then it would take the police over 20 additional years to find the correct house. And that seems obviously like a big, uh, you know, LAPD fuck up. Why didn't they look into owners of those, uh, you know, houses? Check to see if any of those owners owned Pintos as well. I'm not sure. Maybe the Franklin house was registered under Sylvia's name. Maybe the Pinto was registered under Lonnie's name. Or maybe the Pinto wasn't registered at all. I mean, he did deal in stolen cars on a regular basis. Maybe it wasn't registered under his name. I don't know. Could have been hidden in his garage. I don't know. Could have been just, uh, you know, poor investigative work. Uh, maybe like some critics claim, officers assigned to this case work in numerous other cases as well, just didn't care that much about Anitra or her testimony. She was a sex worker addicted to crack, right? NHI, no human involved. Uh, February of 1989, the Southside Slayer case gets derailed by police focusing their attention on the wrong guy for a lot of the killings. Ricky Ross, a black narcotics detective, arrested in his car in the Strawberry Murders kill area. He's found smoking a cigarette with a sex worker, a sex worker maybe he'd gotten a little too, uh, a little too friendly with. Other officers thought they were smoking crack. Ross pulled away in an erratic manner when officers approached his car, and then they found an unregistered 9mm gun in his trunk. And that gun was then matched to three murders. Deputy Ross was charged with murdering three women, but he was released after independent experts determined LAPD had botched their ballistics testing. Also, LAPD police chief Daryl Gates made allegations that Ross was high on cocaine when in fact he tested negative. So what the fuck is going on here? Ross files a lawsuit but loses. Until his death in 2003, numerous LAPD detectives would swear he was the killer. And maybe he was one of the killers. Maybe he got off on a technicality thanks to that botched ballistics test. Meanwhile, it appears as if the grim, grim sleeper has gone to sleep. No more women's bodies are turning up with bullet holes in their chest and cocaine in their system. Maybe that close call with Anitra scared Lonnie into taking a break from murder. Or maybe he started hiding the bodies of his victims instead of just leaving them out in dumpsters and alleys for anyone to find. 1993, Lonnie's arrested but it doesn't have shit to do with sex workers or murder or crack. He's caught stripping, uh, stripping stolen cars and is charged with felony possession of stolen property, six charges of grand theft auto, and he served some time. Sentenced to 365 days in the county jail, but due to overcrowding, is out in just four months. 1997, Lonnie receives a charge for misdemeanor battery, does not serve time for this one. Uh, 1999, Lonnie, now 47, receives another charge for misdemeanor assault, spends almost two years in jail, when the bodies that started showing up in 2002 are later linked to the Lonnie's earlier murders, he'll earn the moniker of Grim Sleeper for sleeping or taking a pause for murder during these years. Uh, serial killers do often take breaks from killing, but 14 years is very atypical. But is that what really happened? A lot of people don't think the Grim Sleeper actually ever did go to sleep. Based on examining South Central murder descriptions, uh, years later, he may have killed up to 14 additional Jane Does during that time. Lonnie Franklin may be one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Before we get back to his known murders, let's check in with the LAPD. In the early 2000s, William Bill Bratton was LA's police commissioner. Many think that he and other elected officials paid no public mind to the resurgence of murder in black neighborhoods. Behind the scenes, LAPD saw a pattern between the murders from the 80s and the early 2000s, but they never shared that pattern with the families of the victims or the public. Why did they think that would compromise their investigations? No reason has ever been given. Uh, the LAPD did not just ignore these cases, though. 
Uh, in, 2001, in 2001, LAPD detectives under new chief Bernard Parks began to look into roughly 10,000 unsolved murder cases that had piled up in their records. That's fucking crazy. 10,000 unsolved murders. That's so many murders. My aunt lives in McCall, Idaho, right around 3,000 people. And driving around McCall, it feels like a decent amount of people. And they had over three times as many dead people as that. People who had been murdered, whose cases had never been solved. In LA County, during the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s, an average of around 2,000 people are being shot and killed every year. That's over five people a day. Some years, over 2,500. Like in 1992, when there were 2,589 murders, over seven murders a day for a whole year. And other people, you know, went missing that year. And many of them were probably almost certainly murdered. So many fucking murders. There's still a lot of murders occurring in LA County. Just over 2,200 homicides in 2020. Uh, Chief Parks and Mayor James Hahn created a cold case unit to investigate all the unsolved murders going all the way back to 1960. Parks ordered them to look at cases from the 60s through the 90s to use DNA technology to test hair, skin, other DNA from crime scenes. Lab technicians worked for years to try to get caught up on these cases. Eventually, their work would help take Lonnie Franklin down, but not before the grim sleeper would wake up, if he ever was asleep, and claim more victims. March 19th, 2002 now. Princess Bertha Mew's body is found in an alley in Inglewood. She's only 15. She had not been shot with a 25 or any other weapon. She'd been strangled after being violently sodomized. If any cocaine was found in her system, sources do not mention it. At least not the ones I found. Men named Mike found her. When the dispatcher asked for his phone number, he hung up. Princess had gone missing on December 21st, 2001. As reported by her foster mother, she ran away from home, turned to sex work as a way to make some money. Princess's short life was a tragedy. Her mom abandoned her when she was just a toddler, left her with her father, and her dad was a real piece of shit. By age three, Princess was malnourished, showed signs of rampant physical abuse. Her dad and his girlfriend beat her, burned her with cigarettes, tied her up, locked her in a closet for multiple days at a time. Too bad the earth couldn't have opened up and eaten both of those motherfuckers. Too bad Cthulhu couldn't appear from the void and devour them. Too bad Bojangles couldn't tie them up in a kill room and see how long it takes someone to bleed to death when you do nothing but poke holes in them with toothpicks. One day, little princess accidentally ingested poison. At least that's uh, what her dad claimed. It was accidental. Uh, when the police came to the house, they removed her from her father's custody. Police charged her father and his girlfriend with 11 counts of felony child abuse. The girlfriend spent a year in prison. Dad spent four years. Not enough. Princess then lived with an adopted family in a white uh, neighborhood. She started to heal from her trauma. Uh, still suffered from night's terrors. She also had a learning disability. Struggled with making friends at school. Then this poor girl, Princess's adoptive mother, who she had grown incredibly close to, dies when she's 10. She never recovers from this. She becomes depressed and angry. Adding to the shitstorm of her life, her adopted dad is in poor health, can't take care of her any longer. An older adoptive sister takes her in, but this sister already had six kids, couldn't supervise Princess. By the fall of 1998, Princess was a ward of the county and was placed in numerous foster homes, and she would run away from all of them. She was last reported missing in December of 2001. Her last foster mom said that she turned to prostitution to make money. Despite no 25 auto being used in her death, Princess, due to DNA evidence left in her body, would be the link to the new generation of LAPD detectives, the one they needed to help find the grim sleeper. A pancreatic enzyme found in human saliva spotted in the swabs taken from her vagina, genitals, uh, rectum, right knee, right ankle, left nipple, right nipple. Criminalists would process the saliva for DNA evidence, upload it to local, state, and federal DNA uh, data bank of felons. In 2003, Lonnie gets arrested again. 
This time, he's convicted of felony possession of stolen property, serves five months in prison, three years of uh, supervised probation, but he won't have his DNA taken. In 2004, voters will approve Proposition 69, and the new law will state that DNA must be collected for all people charged with felony and required expansion of the felon DNA uh, database. Lonnie got real lucky here. Had he been arrested a year later for stolen property, he would have gotten taken down for murder. Uh, July 11, 2003, 35-year-old Valerie McCorvey's body found on Danker Avenue between 108th and 109th Streets in the Westmont area, like the previous victim, raped and strangled. Valerie was struggling with crack addiction, had been arrested six times for prostitution. Her pimp, a convicted felon, took her under his wing. Yeah, kind of. Not much of a wing, really. Uh, I guess maybe a sweet honor. Maybe he exploited her with more compliments or something. Valerie had two children with her pimp. She lost custody of her daughter, lived with her son for a short time. Friend took custody of her son, eventually adopted him. Valerie was described as a sweet person who wanted a better life, but her crack addiction held her back. My God, so much crack, so much, of course. Can't talk about this many sex workers without resident pimpologist Chicken Joe stopping by. Bye bye, playboy, bye bye. The grim sleeper, what a creeper. Wish I could have locked him in a room with the Green River Killer and the Grim Reaper. Turning tricks for crack, never good reason to end up on your back. Great way for Lonnie Franklin, the real Southside Slayer, Chester Turner, to grab you and attack. And where was Valerie's pimp when her body went limp? Out there hiding from the grim sleeper like a wheezy little wimp? And where was everybody else at? So many girls dying amidst all the Southside combat. If you don't want to switch, snitch to the LAPD, deal some street justice on these monsters roaming freely. Too many women hiding from the cops for creeps to keep killing. Making it too easy for dark fantasies to keep fulfilling. Legalized vice to make killers think twice about slaying. You feel me, you dig? You hear what I'm saying? Huh. That was Chicken Joe speak for, uh, he also thinks that if vice was legalized, women like the victims of the Grim Sleeper wouldn't have to hide as much as they did and would thus have a better chance of not being killed by someone like Lonnie Franklin. Well, a very progressive uh, thinking from Chicken Joe. Old recurring character, if you're a new listener. He used to be a pimp, but now he's more of like a sex worker advocate. Uh, back to the timeline now. In 2004, Detective Cliff Shepard, looking through old South LA murder cases when he finds DNA sample taken from the body of Mary Lowe, that 26-year-old killed on Halloween night back in 1987. DNA analysis shows similarities to samples found on Valerie McCorvey's body in Princess uh, Berthamu's body. This was part of the original 2001 effort to solve old murder cases. Kudos to detectives like Shepard in 2004 doing some due diligence on cases that happened before they were officers, doing some deep dive digging in the cold case files. In July 2005, Lonnie's placed on unsupervised probation again because he's not incarcerated. His DNA still not put in the system. Lucky fucker. It was supposed to have been, but it wasn't because probation officers were not collecting DNA from those on unsupervised probation between November 20, 2004 to August 2005 because they had thousands of imprisoned felons to collect from. They were just behind in their work, right? Because there was just too much crime happening. So Lonnie narrowly escapes capture again. January 2006, investigative reporter Christine Pelisek goes to the L.A. coroner's office to speak to Assistant Chief Coroner Ed Winter. He tells her they've been looking into female body dump cases in South Central. Winter reached out to the LAPD, Sheriff's Department. They ignored him. No idea why. Just maybe overworked. This was the beginning of an investigation that would last for several years for Christine. She later wrote in her book, when I first moved to L.A. in the 90s, I was stunned by the level of gun violence. The daily bloodbaths in Los Angeles and the culture of guns and gangs were alien to me. I was particularly shocked at the sheer number of black prostitutes and drug-addicted women killed. These women, whose bodies appeared to litter the streets, seemed to be invisible in their own city. I wanted people to do something. I felt as a reporter at a local paper, it was my job to write about them, to tell their stories to the people in their city. I wanted to make them visible so the community had a face 
or had to face this sick and twisted problem and somehow do a better job of dealing with it. So hail Christine Pelisic. Nimrod is pleased with her. January 1st, 2007, another grim sleeper victim body is found. 25-year-old Janisha Peter. Her body is discovered inside a trash bag near a discarded Christmas tree near the 9500 block of Southwestern Avenue. Going against his old MO, the grim sleeper had shot Janisha in the back. Maybe she'd almost gotten away. Randy Hernandez, a homeless man, was a dumpster uh, was dumpster diving when he saw red fingernails poking through a hole in the bag. Newspapers would fail to report Janisha's murder correctly. Papers reported she was stabbed, but she was actually shot. Janisha's mother, Laverne Peters, heard a news report about a black teen found dead along Western Avenue. Had no idea it was her daughter until the police contacted her. At the time, Laverne was in Inglewood with Janisha's four-year-old son visiting family. She told LA Weekly, her son had a Christmas present for Janisha. He wrapped it himself in aluminum foil and red rope. Oh my God, more sadness. Late December, 2006, Janisha has excitedly told, had excitedly told her mother about her new place. I'm sorry, in late December, back, backtracking here. In late December, 2006, Janisha had excitedly told her mom about, her new, about a new place. She'd been in and out of motels due to struggles with crack, uh, was turning her life around. Once again, like the other victims, she'd had a hard life. By her late teens, some of her best friends had been murdered from gang and drug violence. Janisha had gotten pregnant at age 19. Her mom promised she'd help out. Uh, her son, Justin, born in 2002, those who spoke of her say that Janisha was a good mom. Uh, she graduated from Inglewood Adult School when Justin was one, enrolled in computer classes at Southwest College. She was trying. Laverne wanted her to go to college so she could escape poverty. And that's what it looked like, uh, you know, she was doing. But then crack showed the fuck up. And of course, she became addicted. And then she uh, started turning tricks to feed her habit, went to jail for prostitution charges. When she was released, she went back to sex work to make more money for more crack. Janisha's mom took custody of Justin so he wouldn't fall into the system. The last thing Janisha said to her mom was, just tell Justin I love him. Ah, May 2007, LAPD Police Commissioner Bill Bratton orders a new task force to solve the Grim, Re Grim Sleeper murders. Although they weren't uh, called that quite yet, led by Detective Dennis Kilcoyne. At that time, it looks uh, like Lonnie uh, is being called the 25 auto killer. Uh, Cliff Shepard was another detective on the task force. The other five detectives have chosen to remain anonymous. The task force formed after Janisha's murder was linked to nine unsolved Grim Sleeper murders in LA, the first occurring in 1985. Janisha's murder linked to Princess's murder in 2002, Valerie's murder in 2003, and the 1980s murders. This 800 task force of seven detectives worked for months to find answers. They initially tried to keep the task force a secret to avoid tipping off the killer. Dennis Kilcoyne to later told the LA Times, uh, the day those tests came in, we realized we had a serial killer on our hands who, was, who had been active for 23 years. They used the ballistics evidence, DNA evidence, and Anitra's statement to help identify the killer. The task force was at a disadvantage because it had been so long since the original investigation. They had to travel back in time to the 80s in LA. They had leads, but they all seemed to dissolve into nothing. Too many people refused to snitch. They asked undercover vice officers to collect DNA samples from middle-aged black males arrested for soliciting prostitutes the killer might have been in prison during the 14-year gap. They looked through DOC records, DNA, couldn't find anyone that matched the profile. The department was put on notice that the task force uh, were to be summoned to any homicide scenes that resembled the work of the serial killer. Finally, Attorney General and future California Governor Jerry Brown would allow the controversial use of familial DNA uh, in a California felon database to help catch the killer. Initially, there was a lot of controversy because AG Jerry Brown had the DNA in his possession for a while before authorizing its use. Why wouldn't he release it immediately? Speculation was that he had hopes of becoming the next governor, which he would become, and didn't want to anger civil rights activists who thought familial DNA searches uh, were a privacy violation. Damned if you don't, damned if you do, with a lot of political decisions. 
Uh, Brown said the search would be permitted when all other leads were exhausted and he would wait until they were exhausted. August 27th, 2008, the LA Weekly finally gives Lonnie his serial killer title publicly, the Grim Sleeper. Uh, this came after the police linked Janisha's murder publicly to a string of murders from the 80s. Christine Pelisek, author of this now famed article, the one who named Lonnie the Grim Sleeper. Uh, Christine met with Detective Jerry Steinhoff from Inglewood to interview him about Princess. He told her that DNA evidence on Princess's body was linked to Valerie, that these two cases were linked to the 80s murders, as we've said. You know, the killer shot the 80s victims with the same gun, left saliva on their breasts. Christine broke the news of the secret task force, revealed the link between Janisha's murder, other murders of black women, going back to 85. She called out the fact that LAPD failed to alert communities about the killer, waited a long time to assemble the task force, and more public outrage ensues. Early September 2008, LA officials finally announced a $500,000 reward for info leading to the killer's capture. February 25th, 2009, Chief Bratton holds a press conference for the first time about the sleeper. This is when the police, uh, you know, uh, first, you know, the Grim Sleeper was announced in the press before. Now the police are saying the Grim, Sle Grim Sleeper using that moniker uh, to the press. Soon after this, Attorney General Jerry Brown approves the familial search through California's felon DNA databases. This access to familial DNA is the precursor to Detective Paul Holes using familial DNA a decade later, not from a criminal database, but from GED Match, free open source website that pools together genetic profiles uploaded by users seeking to conduct research or fill in gaps in their family trees uh, to solve the cold case of the Golden State Killer, which we talked about extensively in that episode. Uh, the use of familial DNA is controversial to some because Black and Latino Americans are disproportionately represented in DNA databases. Familial, familial I don't like to say that word. It doesn't roll off the tongue to me. Familial. Eh, it seems mushy. Familial DNA targets the parents and siblings of the offenders, which can bring the police right to the doorsteps of people who fear them. It can also potentially implicate family members in crimes, and privacy advocates feel it's a privacy violation, but also a great way to solve cold cases. And if you, uh, you know, haven't, for example, killed a bunch of people, it's not going to get you in a whole bunch of trouble. But I do understand privacy concerns and the slippery slope that can create. I discussed this. Uh, I've discussed this in previous episodes. Uh, don't want to bog down this one. Discussing it again. Agree to move on? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, December 2009, LAPD releases composite drawings of three middle-aged black men they think look like the uh, Grim Sleeper. Uh, these drawings will not lead to Lonnie Franklin, but familial DNA will. In the summer of 2010, detectives linked the murders to a relative of the killer using evidence from that DNA database, Lonnie's son, Christopher Franklin. He'd been arrested in 2009 for felony weapons possession. The database allowed the police to infer a sufficient similarity to his profile and establish, you know, that family relationship between Christopher and the killer. The 800 task force works for the weekend, creates a family tree for Christopher, analyze all the men on the tree to see if any of them match their uh, criminal profile. And through this process, Lonnie emerges as a suspect. Finally! God, it took forever. A team is sent to uh, Taylor and get his DNA. On July 6, 2010, officers obtained DNA samples from Lonnie uh, by following him uh, to a birthday party at a pizza place. Uh, he's working there, you know, obviously as a birthday clown. Again, no longer going by the name Smacky. He's now known as Cracky. Instead of juggling, he just offers you some crack. Instead of singing, you know, he'll just be like, are you sure you don't want some crack? And instead of blowing up balloon animals, he'll just, you know, he'll smoke some crack. Uh, you know, <laughs> come on, loosen up everybody. Live a little, smoke a little crack. I'll show you how. And then he, he did have one song. He'd be like, you take your crack pipe out, you put your crack rocks in, you hold your lighter like this, and you fill your fucking lungs, you smoke some fucking crack rocks, and you pass that on the floor. And that's when I take some pics. <laughs> God, I'm waiting forever to hit that button. I'm done now. Almost. 
Shout out to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for tossing that slide whistle button after hearing me, uh, you know, wish for one, you know, last week. Very fun uh, button to hit. In addition to the, the clown honk button, which would also uh, have, have you know, fit here. Where do, where's that? Come on, clowny. I, I thought I had you lined up and I did not. I know this is taking a long time, but I couldn't move on until I hit that button. I have a slide whistle button. I'm a clown, I have a clown honk button. I'm a, I'm a lucky boy. Uh, back to the actual topic now. Officers did follow Lonnie. To a, I feel like I've been smoking some crack. Officers did follow Lonnie to a birthday party at Pizza Place. And then an officer posed as a busboy, collected his plate, cup, and pizza crust. They compared the new pizza DNA to DNA from saliva found on victim's breast, clothing, zip tie of a trash bag, and the DNA match was exact. Lonnie is now charged with multiple murders. Fucking finally. July 7th, 2010. He's arrested at his house without incident. His entire neighborhood gathered around to watch. They all thought Lonnie had been arrested for stealing cars again. Shocked to find out he was arrested for, you know, the now public grim sleeper crimes. Lonnie's wife, Sylvia, refuses to talk to police, shows support for her husband, not known how much or how little she actually knew about it. I think she knew more than she is let on. That afternoon, some of the family members of victims came to the house. They wanted to see where Lonnie lived, what his home looked like. Donnell, or Donnell Alexander told the LA Times, his neighbors looked like the people I see every day. They weren't aliens, and he wasn't hiding in the community. Uh, searched Lonnie's home, found 800 items of evidence, including 10 guns, one of which was the 25 caliber used to kill the victims. The police searched his property, found more horrifying evidence, over 1,000 Polaroid photos of women and teenage girls, over 1,000. He'd been taking so many pictures for so long. Some of them were nude, unconscious, bleeding. Others looked dead because they likely were dead. Uh, the police found a picture of Anitra Washington, injured, slouched over in her car with one breast exposed. Right, likely after she was shot. Damn, he took a picture of her, assuming she was dead, not knowing she would, uh, you know, make it to the hospital and live. Her picture was hidden in the wall, in a wall in Lonnie's garage. They also found a picture of Janisha in Lonnie's garage refrigerator. The police think the fridge and the wall photos had special significance to Lonnie because they were separate from the others. They assume these pics were murder victims, or at least, you know, women Lonnie thought he'd killed. It may have been part of his trophy case. The pictures were taken inside his house, uh, car, or garage. Most of them show women smiling, but in some, the women are unconscious, unhappy, appear blatantly frightened. Three of the women in the pictures appear to be white, but the rest are black women. Some of the girls in the pics, you know, young teenagers, clearly. The police identified all the known victims, but had no way to tell if the rest of the women were also victims. L.A. Police Chief Charlie Beck told the press, we certainly don't believe we are so lucky or so good as to know all of his victims. We need the public's help. The police also found a few hundred hours worth of video footage of victims. A few hundred hours. Videos showing naked, partially naked women in a variety of sexual poses. In total, the police identified 180 different women between the videos and the photos. Holy shit. It would take a month to look through missing persons databases and coroner records to identify many of them. They still haven't identified all of them. Uh, Lonnie's arrest was a tragic reminder that although justice had finally been served, it would not bring all these women back. However, the arrest did mark a key moment for the community in their search for justice. They finally had some answers. The police received over 100 phone calls the day they announced the arrest. Most of them were from the families of missing and murdered women hoping to see if their loved one's murder was linked to Lonnie. On July 27, 2010, Lonnie appears in court for an arraignment. Lonnie's original defense attorney, Luisa Pensanti, she opposes the release of the photos, says it may taint the jury pool. And the judge basically tells her to fuck off. Get out of here. Go on. Come on. Get out of here. That's nonsense. After his arrest in 2010, the initial hearing, it takes six years for Lonnie to go to trial. Trial takes so long because of the huge volume of evidence, right? It requires a long pre-trial discovery period. So many murders to go over. During the waiting period, LA Weekly discovers that Lonnie would collect a disability pension of $1,700 a month for the rest of his life, uh, even if he were to be sentenced 
to death row. Oh, that's right. I fucked that up earlier. I remember I had it wrong. I read, this is the correct one. Yeah, he's still, uh, you know, she's going to get that until he dies. What a fucking crock of shit. On December 16, 2010, the LAPD presented 180 Polaroids at a press conference. 35 of the women in the pictures still unidentified. The pictures show women of all ages, from teenagers to middle-aged women. Some of the photos are new, some over 30 years old. Police Chief Charlie Be uh, Beck made his statement. These people are not suspects. We don't even know if they are victims, but we do know this. Lonnie Franklin's reign of terror in the city of Los Angeles, which spanned well over two decades, culminating with almost a dozen murder victims, certainly needs to be investigated further. Detective Kilcoyne from the 800 Task Force says, as a police department, we have an obligation to account for the welfare of these women. We're trying to fill in the life and times of Lonnie Franklin over the past 30 years. Talking to people is a big part of that. There are obviously women who had a conversation or two with this guy. I wouldn't be surprised if we find some of them were his victims. The question of the day is why? What was he doing to get these women to do this sort of stuff on film? Uh, typically, people use drugs as leverage. We have, we didn't find one iota of evidence he is into that. Eh, Lonnie may have never used crack. I'm surprised they, they said that. Doesn't mean he didn't, you know, have some on hand in order to get these women to do what he wanted. Maybe he just told him he had crack. I highly doubt he wasn't mentioning crack around this. Uh, unlike most cases, the police decided not to wait until after conviction to release the photos. They knew very little about Lonnie or his past, hoped the public could give them the answers they needed. It was so hard to find out his past because no one's really talking. November 3rd, 2011, Reuters uh, reported that the police considered Lonnie a suspect in six other murder cases. Two of the six murders were from his sleeping period. Two victims found in the 80s and two women uh, reported missing in 2005. The remains have never been found. Uh, they linked him to the killings because of the photos. The police decided not to charge Lonnie for these murders because they didn't want to delay the trial even further. In 2014, David Broomfield creates his documentary, Tales of the Grim Sleeper. Pam got him an interview with Christopher, Lonnie's son. Chris said it took him almost three years to deal with his DNA being used to arrest his dad. People in the neighborhood viewed him as a snitch just for having his DNA taken, which obviously was not his choice. He didn't give it voluntarily. But some people still thought he broke the don't snitch code. Even members of his own family said he turned on his dad and sold him out. Speaks to how strong that don't snitch culture still is in some places. February 6, 2015, Lonnie attends yet another hearing. Families of victims express frustration with how slow the case is going. They cite Marcy's Law, victims' bill of rights approved by California voters in 2008 that entitled crime victims and their families to a speedy trial. But, you know, they want to make sure they get the trial right. In 2015, Lonnie's defense attorneys claim that an expert they hired determined that DNA from two crime scenes linked to Lonnie were actually linked to serial killer Chester Turner, that dude I mentioned earlier who was convicted of killing 15 women, most of them in South Central, between 1987-1998. These additional two murders, uh, you know, linked uh, to here are, uh, oh, sorry, the, the judge determines the expert is not qualified to testify and they disregard this. The defense then names 12 other men who they felt may be sources of the DNA. The judge dismisses all that as well. February 16th, 2016, long-awaited People versus Lonnie Franklin Jr. trial finally begins. After a six-year wait, the trial would last three and a half months. At his trial, Lonnie never testified in his own defense, never showed any emotion throughout the entire ordeal. Deputy DA Beth Silverman presents her opening arguments. She describes the victims as sisters, daughters, and mothers who suffered frailties but had hopes and dreams. She compares images of each victim smiling with their crime scene photos. The victims, as you know, all vulnerable women, uh, Silverman told the jury, pay close attention to his body language and his conduct during the interview process as he laughs and makes light of the photos of the dead women lying on the table in front of him. Uh, I watched that entire video she's referring to here, and it is fucking disturbing. Shows how just cold-blooded this dude is. He actually laughs about some of the photos. 
just like making, making, you know, just jokes about how he wouldn't mess around, how he wouldn't fuck some of these women, you know, they're too fat, too ugly. A couple of times the uh, detective was like, uh, sorry, what, what do you just say? And he just repeats it like it's just normal shit to say. Zero remorse. These women were not human to him. He learned to dehumanize them long ago. Think of them as nothing but, you know, crackhead hookers. Like that label made them the equivalent of a fucking cockroach or something. Lonnie's defense attorney, Seymour Amster now, he opens by speaking about the inferior science of DNA and ballistics evidence. Come on, come on. You know, you can't trust ballistics and DNA and eyewitness testimony. <laughs> what are you new? What, you're going to trust a bunch of, you're going you're to trust an eyewitness and all this DNA science and ballistics. And he was at the right place at the right time and didn't have the right alibis. You're going to trust, you're going to trust all that. Uh, no one's buying his bullshit. LAPD detective Dennis Kilcoyne is the first witness. He testifies that Janisha's death prompted them to search for the killer because the DNA matched two earlier, earlier cases. Then, then Chief Bratton orders a task force, you know, starts connecting the dots. May 2nd, 2016, Deputy DA Beth Silverman presents her closing arguments. She tells the jury, the murders were so vicious. They were so calculated. They were so demeaning. The way that these women ended up, half of them naked, all of them in filthy alleys. The defense then tried to appeal to the jury's conscience to convince them to choose a life sentence over death. Amster argued the death penalty would delay the healing process. Every time the families think of the approaching execution date, it'll be like opening the wounds again. Come on, don't kill him for the, for the family's sake, for the families of, the, of his victims' sake. What the fuck? Amster closed his case by speaking about a mystery man with a mystery gun and mystery DNA. Uh-huh. Dude's DNA just mysteriously got all over a bunch of dead women. Almost all of them killed in the exact same manner with the same gun, the gun that he had owned for the duration of these killings. So his argument falls flat like it should have. I don't know how these fucking, some of these defense attorneys, how they even fucking bring themselves to make these arguments. Uh, May 5th, 2016, Lonnie Franklin, age 63, is convicted of killing 10 women. Deborah, Henrietta, Barbara, Bernita, Mary, Lacrica, Alicia, Princess, Valerie, Janisha. The jury deliberated for a day before they found him guilty on all 10 counts of first-degree murder. Lonnie, of course, shows no emotion as the clerk reads the guilty verdicts. Uh, June 6, June 6, 2016, the jury recommends a death sentence for Lonnie. Fuck yeah. Uh, during the penalty phase of the trial, the prosecution prevents, presents evidence about the other missing women they thought Lonnie had killed. The police chose not to prosecute Lonnie for these other victims because they worried it might lead to more delays in the trial. Ayella Marshall, age 18, disappeared in 2006. Uh, 2006. Police found her Hawthorne High School ID card in Lonnie's house. Uh, Rolenia Morris, age 31, went missing in 2005. Uh, you know, her driver's license found in Lonnie's house as well. Uh, uh, also Polaroids of her in compromising positions. Their bodies have never been found. Uh, Inez Warren, age 28, killed in 1988. Found in Gramercy Park. Gunshot wound to the chest. She used drugs, was a sex worker. Sexy graphic photos of her. Other unknown women found in Lonnie's garage. August 14th, 1986, Lonnie may have also killed a man, Thomas Steele, a friend to one of the female victims. He was nearly charged in his murder, but detectives lacked uh, DNA evidence but ballistics matched. Thomas's body found in the middle of the intersection of 71st Street and Haldale Avenue in Harvard Park. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe Thomas saw Lonnie kill one of the victims. Georgia May Thomas, another potential victim, I'd say definite grim sleeper victim, killed in 2000, age 43, murdered by two gunshot wounds to the chest, body dumped in an industrial yard surrounded by garbage, near other victims. Lonnie's DNA found on her body, ballistics show, she was killed by the 25 caliber handgun from Lonnie's home. Georgia's sister Vivian recalled the LA Times uh, dropping her off, dropping off her sister at her boyfriend's um, house. She knew Lonnie killed her sister when she saw him on TV in 2010, but they didn't want to slow down the trial to also add, you know, uh, her murder charge. January 1984, Sharon Dismuke, age 21, shot twice in the chest, dumped in an abandoned gas station. 
possibly the first grim sleeper victim. No DNA evidence found on her, though. After presenting all these possible murders, the women Lonnie raped in Germany also flew into South Central to testify at the sentencing phase of his trial. Good for her. Her rape occurred 42 years before his sentencing trial. She was 17 when it happened. Now she's 59 years old. Flies around the world to help make sure this piece of shit gets put on death row. Fucking hell, Nimrod. August 10th, 2016, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. sentenced to death happened to be the 31st anniversary of Deborah Jackson's murder, that first homicide victim he was charged and convicted of killing. Superior Judge Kathleen Kennedy tells Lonnie, this is not a sentence of vengeance, it's justice. Amen. When victim impact statements are read, uh, Mary Alexander, mother of Alicia Monique Alexander, the 18-year-old he killed in 88, addresses Lonnie and says, I'd like for Mr. Franklin to turn around and face me. And then that cold-blooded motherfucker actually does turn around, which shocks the courtroom. Mary asks him, I'd like to know why. And he whispers a response. So she says louder, why? And he whispers again, I didn't do it. What a piece of shit. Unwilling to do anything to help any victim's family member heal. Such a dirtbag. Also, the hearing one victim's sister tells Lonnie she recognized him and he shouts at her, that's a bald-faced lie. First time he spoke uh, during the trial, only outburst. Uh, Anitra Washington said outside the courthouse when it was over, it's a little bit of relief from all the pressure of being one of the living victims. There were quite a few times when I felt like not coming because of the pressure and the fear for my family. But I'm so glad somebody convinced me to go ahead and do this. Laverne Peters, mother of probable final grim sleeper victim, Janisha Peters, told the LA Times, the defendant took my daughter, murdered her, put her in a plastic bag, a trash bag, like she was trash. My hope is that he spends the rest of his gl uh, glory days in a jail cell where he will become, which will become his trash bag. Agreed. Lonnie was in place in line, uh, last in line of 750 California death row inmates. Since no one had been killed in California since 2006, it was predicted Lonnie would die before his execution was set. And that would happen. March 2019, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, signed an executive order placing a moratorium on the death penalty and granting reprieve to everyone sentenced to death. The order also called for a repeal of lethal injection and the closing of the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison. Not a fan of this decision. Uh, I get not wanting to kill the wrongly convicted. I really do. But could we at least make an exception for serial killers? When was the last time a serial killer was wrongly convicted? When was the last time someone was falsely convicted for killing like fucking 10 people? March 28, 2020, age 67. Lonnie Franklin Jr. dies at San Quentin State Prison. He's found unresponsive in his cell. There was no signs of trauma. He was pronounced dead at 7.43 p.m. The California DOC released the statement that said, Franklin was found unresponsive in his single cell March 28th at about 7.20 p.m. Medical assistance was rendered and an ambulance was summoned. Franklin was pronounced de deceased at 7.43 p.m. His cause of death is pending the results of an autopsy. However, there were no signs of trauma. The results of that autopsy have not a... Uh, don't appear to have been made public. Cannot find them. Maybe they never will be released publicly. I hope that's because that there were signs of trauma. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe somebody brutally killed that motherfucker. Probably not. Probably not. But, you know, I can hope. Let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. The Grim Sleeper. Wish we knew more about why he did what he did, but he just won't talk. Never would admit, you know, why he did what he did. Never, never would admit that he did what he did. Now, obviously, he never will. His family uh, doesn't appear to have ever spoken with the press outside of his uh, son Christopher's brief discussion with those two doc producers before his dad was convicted. Since his conviction, radio silence from his family. I don't blame him. 
No additional info, I guess, would really be satisfying. It's not like he would have a good reason for killing who he killed, doing what he did. I would like to know what sparked it all, though. What made him attack that poor teen girl in Germany? You know, he was, he was taking pics back then. Did he and the other guys he was with that day all share the same dark fantasy? Did they build it together? And then he never let it go. Did he want to keep replicating the power he felt that day? Did something happen to him before that back in South Central when he was younger? Something flipped an evil switch inside his head? Was he fantasized about doing some version of what he ended up doing, you know, uh, in Germany long before that? Who the fuck knows? What I do know is that he couldn't have found an easier hunting ground in the mid-80s when he started in the U.S. than the neighborhood he was born into. Holy shit. Economic devastation in the form of lost jobs, sudden lack of social program funding, an out-of-fucking-control crack epidemic, local mistrust of the LAPD, and a strong never-snitch neighborhood moral code. And a general societal lack of empathy for young black female crack-addicted sex workers. Many in South Central, in the police force, in the media, didn't seem to place a lot of value in their lives. Yeah, they made some terrible choices, but they also had lives that had value. They had children, families, and or friends who loved them. The possibility of recovery, a brighter future, had they not gotten to Lonnie's Pinto, so many futures snuffed out. In 1988, the police connected seven different murders, all murdered with a 25 caliber gun in close proximity. Anita Washington raped, almost killed by Lonnie in November of 88 reported the rape and the bullets from her body matched the murder victims, but the police still not able to catch him. 14 years then passed when Lonnie was in a sleep or maybe just found a better way to dispose of victims for a while. By 2002, definitely back at it. 2002, 2003, 2007, definitely struck again. Princess, you know, Bertha Mew, Valerie McCorvey, Janisha Peters. 2007, the LAPD formed a new task force and a group of seven detectives finally solved the murders and arrested Lonnie David Franklin Jr. after using familial DNA technology to find him. The Grim Sleeper taken into LAPD custody, July 2010. Reign of terror finally over. One less monster on the streets of South Central. Took six years for him to get to trial, but Lonnie was finally convicted of 10 murders, sentenced to death in 2016. And then he died on March 28, 2020 of unknown causes without ever telling anyone why he did what he did, bringing an end to the Grim Sleeper case. And that's at least some good news. Always good when a serial killer dies. The crack epidemic also seems to have ended. Uh, a little more good news. Crack isn't gone, don't get me wrong, but it's no longer being used at 1980s and 90s epidemic levels, and that's good. An opioid crisis has replaced it, that's terrible, but at least crack use has faded in the U.S. In the U.K., it's becoming a problem in recent years, but no longer rampant in places like South Central. A Harvard study determined that U.S. crack usage peaked in 87, started to fall year after year after that, dropping to 60% of peak usage by 2000, when that study ended. It appears to have continued to drop since, I say appears because it's hard to find a lot of concrete year-by-year -year crack usage or crack arrest stats. But a lot of different articles talk about usage fading strongly over the last 20-plus years. Anecdotally, when was the last time you read an article about so many people smoking crack? Doesn't seem too popular recently. Why? Uh, did the war on drugs snuff it out? I don't, I don't think so. It basically seems, uh, according to a few articles I, I was able to read, like it just fell out of fashion. It became a joke. Something looked down on by more and more people. That does make sense to me. Young kids coming up in the 80s and 90s watched crack devastate their communities. Uh, they saw what it looked like to be a quote-unquote crackhead. I mean, that term was tossed around constantly when I was a kid. And it was definitely like, oh man, you don't want to smoke crack. That was like the dirtiest drug you could even possibly think of. Crack became a punchline in stand-up comedy routines. I feel like meth has taken the replace of crack that way. You know, hip-hop culture, late 80s and 90s, crack was the punchline. Chris Rock told a lot of crack jokes in his landmark 1996 HBO special, Bring the Pain. God, that's a good special. Two Emmys and a Grammy. Def comedy jam, stand-up acts in the 90s. Countless crackhead jokes. The Hughes Brothers, 93 film, Menace to Society. That was a big film with teens. I loved that movie when it came out. It made being a crackhead look like the worst thing you could be. 
John Singleton's 1991 Boys in the Hood film portrays crack is what brought South Central down. Right? The Ice Cube, Chris Tucker, fucking classic 1995 hit comedy Friday. God, that was huge when I was a kid. Uh, made being a crackhead look terrible. The whole by Felicia, that phrase comes from this movie. Felicia played someone addicted to crack. 1987 NWA song Dope Man talks about sucking dick for another hit of presumably crack. It was a cultural punchline, thank God. And usage declined because of it. It quickly became really, really not cool to smoke crack. Let's hope it stays that way and it doesn't make a big comeback. Uh, you just heard uh, all about what it can do to you. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Lonnie Franklin Jr., the grim sleeper, born in 1952 in South Central LA, would grow up to become a dude convicted of killing 10 women on May 5th, 2016. May have killed over 25. He picked up local women, most of them either part-time or full-time sex workers, desperate for money to buy crack they were addicted to. He brought an end to their already hard lives after raping them when he shot them with his 25, for the most part, and took pictures of their bodies. Number two, so much fucking crack in this episode. Please don't smoke crack. Don't sell your body to get money for crack. Don't get into same, some strange dude's car for crack money. That's the main takeaway from this episode. Fucking crack. Number three, Lonnie's Electronics Car Parts and more Superstore. My God. Title's a joke, but Lonnie Franklin really did sell all sorts of stolen shit out of his house because none of his neighbors had any interest in calling the police for basically any reason ever. Don't snitch. Or maybe do snitch when a piece of shit like Lonnie lives on your street. Number four, Familial DNA technology is what finally took Lonnie down. 2010, the police received permission from the attorney general to search felon databases for a DNA profile similar to that left at the crime scenes. And that would allow them to find Christopher Franklin, Lonnie's son, in that database. And then they created a family tree and identified Lonnie as the likely killer. They followed him to a pizza party where unfortunately he was not working as a birthday clown and they collected his DNA and then officially linked him to 10 murders. Number five, new info. The LA Times published a slideshow of some of the Polaroids found in Lonnie's home. As of 2021, most of these women have still not been identified. The paper released the images as another plea for public help. If you look at the pictures and recognize one of these women or think you have info, you can call the LAPD at 877-527-3247 or call Crime Stoppers 800-222-8477. You can also text Crime Stoppers at 274 637 I've included a link to the slideshow in the episode description. Pam from the Grim Sleeper documentary did manage to contact one of the unidentified women in the photos, Mikey, uh, the woman in the first slide. She was sleeping when the photo was taken. Thankfully, Lonnie did not hurt her. Uh, Wish we could know for certain that the rest were not hurt either. Maybe you can help with that. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Grim Sleeper has been sucked. Most surprising part of this episode to me was that he was one of but many serial killers roaming South Central in the 80s and 90s. God, one of many black serial killers in that area. White killers, Richard Ramirez, you know, they were just getting all the, all the press. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Thanks for doing all the initial digging into this week's research. Bid Elixir for continuously refining the Time Suck app. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, running badmagicmerch.com and more. Thank you to Liz, the Enchantress Hernandez, for running our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page. Currently Cult of the Curious too, along with her wonderful All Seen Eyes moderators. And she helps Logan with the socials. Uh, which, and we're on TikTok now. So many socials. Uh, thanks for uh, helping curate an awesome online community. Thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord. You can link to the Discord group to the Time Suck app. Uh, next week on Time Suck, the Space Lizards decreed back at the end of July that this September, 
we would suck the Jehovah's Witnesses. So who are these people that you may see knocking on doors in your neighborhood, walking around with sandwich boards, proclaiming the end of days are near? According to their website, we come from hundreds of ethnic and language backgrounds, yet we are united by common goals. Above all, we want to honor Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and the creator of all things. We do our best to imitate Jesus Christ and are proud to be called Christians. Each of us regularly spends time helping people learn the Bible about God's kingdom because we witness or talk about Jehovah God and his kingdom. We are known as Jehovah's Witnesses. And, uh, and that's it. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, JK, Jehovah's Witnesses are members of the Christian Millennialist Group under the Watchtower Society, members of the movement, probably best known for their door-to-door evangelical work, uh, witnessing, quote-unquote, from house to house, offering biblical literature, recruiting, converting people to the truth. Some ways, a lot of people find them a little bit cult-like. Cult, cult, cult. Although Christian-based, the group believes that the traditional Christian churches have fucked up. They've deviated from the true teachings of the Bible. They don't work in full harmony with God. To that end, they have a lot of beliefs that are just a bit outside of mainstream thinking, like how they think God doesn't want them to have blood transfusions, even in medical emergencies, or that their members can't serve in the military or hold public office. Witnesses do not celebrate Christmas or Easter because they believe that these festivals are based on or at least massively contaminated by pagan customs and religions. They don't even celebrate birthdays. Almost nothing gets God's panties bunched up like a bunch of 10-year-olds smiling and having fun and eating cupcakes and Chuck E. Cheese. When you're done blowing out those candles, you little fucks, you might as well grab a shovel. Start digging your own graves. Dig your way down to hell. Also, Armageddon. That's a hot topic in the Jehovah's Witnesses' faith. The end of days are upon us. Repent. Church leaders have previously provided a number of exact dates for when the world was going to end, but now they just tell the followers it's going to happen any day now because they got tired of looking real fucking stupid when they were wrong literally every time. Doomsday preachers, will they ever just shut the fuck up? Probably not. I guess it makes them feel important to think they know shit the rest of us don't, which they literally never do. Uh, Join me for a wild ride. A lot of mockery uh, for the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower Society next week. Uh, Also next week marks five years of the suck. First episode came out September 19th, 2016. Woohoo! Episode 262 drops on September 20th, 2016. Uh, What a fucking ride it has been. Hail Nimrod. Hope we can keep it going. Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Let's kick things right off with the Robin Williams update from uh, Super Sucker Miranda Audette. She writes, hey, Master Sucker, I'm sitting here finishing up the Robin Williams suck and listening to everything he accomplished and the things he has uh, he was troubled with has me nearly in tears. Who's cutting these onions? Anyway, Robin Williams has always been my favorite actor. I've never seen a project of his that I didn't enjoy. My parents even got my name from the mom in Mrs. Doubtfire, Miranda. One of the most vivid memories of him I have is going to the movie theater with my mom just a few months after he passed to see the third night at the museum. At the very end of the movie, Robin's final scene is supposed to be a closing to the movie series, but it's hard not to feel like it's his personal closing as well. We will never know where in his head he was at during the filming, but the way he talks about moving on and not being afraid to do so, it left my mom and I covered with chills and tears. I still can't watch that scene without getting emotional. I've always struggled with depression and bipolar disorder. I relate so much to making everyone else around you happy while drowning on the inside, much like Robin Williams did. Besides him just being extremely talented and hilarious, knowing his mental struggles just like everyone else is another big part of why he will always be my favorite actor. Not sorry for the long message. Can't wait to see you here in Tampa later this year. Hail Nimrod, Miranda. Thank you, Miranda. I love how much Robin's life means to yours. I have, I have not seen Night at the Museum 3, but I did watch the scene you brought up, found on YouTube, and wow. Uh, yeah. 
it, it did feel kind of like he was saying goodbye. I mean, what a guy, what a life. Uh, I'd like to think he had more good days and bad days. At least that's what I choose to believe. And that's the most you can hope for in life, I guess, right? More good than bad. Uh, I hope the curve heads the other way. Venue stay open. And I see you in Tampa this December. I think it will. Hail Nimrod to you and keep loving Ron Williams. Now for a crazy Mark Bitchell Twitchell update. Cool-ass Canadian sucker Crystal writes, Hey, Dan, I'll cut to the chase right away. Growing up, I had a best friend who lived a few doors down. Her oldest brother's best friend was Mark Twitchell. He was at her house almost every time I went over. Fucking crazy. Her and I met when I was eight and we remained close until drifting apart at probably age 13 or 14. If my memory serves, he was friends with her brother that entire time. And after listening to your podcast, I vaguely remember something about videotapes. I won't mention the real names because years after Mark and her brother, we'll call him Brent, stopped talking. Mark actually reached out to Brent. Brent, who had by this time figured out he was a creep, never responded. Mark and Brent were just old enough that we never went to school together, but I attended the same elementary for sure, St. Matthew's, and probably junior high and high school, St. Cecilia and Archbishop O'Leary. I know exactly where he lived. He was less than a block from that elementary, about a block from me. That's crazy. Anyways, Mark was a damn creep. I never liked him. I got a weird feeling about him. He's the type of dude that would watch you literally from the shadows with a creepy grin on his face. I really can't say I'm surprised. I'm more surprised he got married and isn't a virgin. <laughs> Besides that, I just want to say I love your show. I'm very picky with podcasts. Yours was the first one I ever liked and to this day is my favorite. I was It was introduced to me by, a cold co by an old coworker. Slow down, Dan. And I'm so sorry I forgot his name. Uh, but he used to work at the Jasper Avenue O2s. So shout out to him. I think your Jeffrey Dahmer episode was the first one I ever heard. Much love to you and the fam and the entire podcast team. Regards, Crystal. Well, Crystal, thank you, first off, for the very kind words about Time Suck. I'm flattered, and you're clearly a weirdo. That's the only way this show would remain your favorite. Uh, also, uh, <laughs> now I feel like I got to hit that button after saying that. I mean, come on. <laughs> also, literally watched you from the shadows with a creepy grin on his face. Yikes. Not surprised he was a kid who did that. Uh, still disturbing. Clearly something was very fucking wrong with that dude. How strange to have gone to the same schools. I don't think anyone from my junior high or high school uh, has ever done something like that. Not that I'm aware of, but you know, I did know a lady in the neighborhood growing up who turned out to be a murderer and that did creep me out. And she was for sure creepy. Hope life is good up north. Thanks for writing in. Now a very interesting anonymous update about another killer we previously covered uh, in a way. A badass mama bear, meat sack writes, dear Suckmaster Dan wanted to say, I think I had your dream job. Although it was more of a side hustle. I was on the execution team for the state of Illinois. John Wayne Gacy was my first execution. Holy shit. And while I'm good with my decision, and it is an open secret where I work, now retired and live, please withhold my name, done, as there are a lot of people who do not agree with my thinking. Remember those abortion doctor killers? I don't think I fit the stereotype of an executioner. At the time, I was a 33-year-old, 5-foot, 100-pound mother four. I was working as a correctional medical technician, think prison EMT, while Stateville, the prison where Gacy was executed, had medical technicians, they preferred people who had not had contact with the condemned inmate, so they drew from a nearby prison. Thinking was that a woman, especially a physically non-threatening one, would have a more calming effect, and it sort of worked. When a male member and myself went to Gacy's holding cell to explain the IV procedure, he was eating Kentucky Fried Chicken at the time, he actually, of course he was, he actually said, I like her, but not him. Mm -hmm. I was asking just one question during, I was asked, just one question during my interview. Why do you want to do this? I answered that I had three sons. Wasn't sure uh, if they were looking for some big moral discussion, but I guess it was good enough for them. Love the podcast. My sons introduced uh, me to it a couple years ago. Gives us a lot of inside jokes. Your podcast also broke the ice when my granddaughter brought her boyfriend to dinner for the first time. 
After some awkward moments, we found common ground when we discovered we both listened to Time Suck. Shout out to Coda. Looking forward to seeing you in Columbus on September 25th with my sucklings, Noah, Taylor, and Stephanie. Quality time with the kids. Sorry we'll be missing the meet and greet, but totally get it. By the way, just finished the Robin Williams Suck. You do have a moving on up and a slide whistle button out in the world. It's called your phone. Is you dumb? Fair. <laughs> Couldn't make this email any shorter, so deal with it. Sincerely, name redacted. Anonymous sucker. Uh, yeah, I get it. You have boys. Gacy killed boys ruthlessly, so fuck that guy. Good for you for volunteering. Must have been a relief to know he was dead and gone, and there would be zero chance of old Pogo the Clown hurting anyone ever again. Not everyone's a fan of executions, but I appreciate what you did 100%. Fuck him. Fuck all these serial killers. Lowest of the low. True scum of the earth. I'd love it if they're all dead. Uh, I got your secret message about that sign too. Funny shit. Uh, see you soon. Now how about a sweet Robin Williams message illustrating how much of an impact one person can have on someone's childhood. From rad ass sucker Russ. Russ writes, Dan, first let me say thank you for the Robin Williams suck. Much like Disney, Robin Williams is so much woven into the fabric of who I am today. So it's not surprising that just like the Walt Disney suck, I choked up a few times during this suck. When I was a young kid, my neighbor had Hook on VHS and she let me borrow it one day since Peter Pan was my favorite Disney movie. Please excuse the ridiculous pun, but I was hooked. Uh, wait, hold on. You were hooked. Gotta hit that. <laughs> From the very first viewing, I had to walk every single day down to her house, borrow the movie and return it the same day after watching. My parents couldn't really afford to go uh, buy me my own copy. I eventually wore her tape out and my parents ended up having to buy her a replacement copy and bought me my own copy at the same time. To this day, Hook is still my all-time favorite movie, and I choke up every time Rufio tells Peter he wishes he had a dad like him. Mrs. Doubtfire helped my siblings and I work past my parents' divorce while we were young as well. We watched the movie so many times, and I think it connects with the Rufio line as well. I think I always wanted a dad who would fight or do anything to be around his kids instead of the route my dad chose to take. Robin playing both of those, of those roles really made him such a huge part of my life. And although I never met him and got to thank him personally for the impact his career had on my life, I feel like I lost a close friend the day he died. This suck really made me appreciate him and love the passion he had for life and entertaining people. The world could use more men like him. Thank you again so much for this episode, Russ. Russ, I'm so fucking glad you liked it. And agreed. The world could use more passionate and kind people like Robin Williams. Dude was a walking smile creator. Uh, lit up a lot of rooms he was in with so much light. I mean, yeah, he fucked a lot of people in the street, you know, and the police helped him with that, which is uncomfortable, but we'll overlook that since I made it up. I love your stories. And I hope you are, uh, I hope you are now the man you wanted your dad to be. Hail fucking Nimrod, you beautiful bastard. Last one. Let's end with some comedy. Another Cummins Law victim. <laughs> a good one. They're all good, but this is, this is rough. Meet Zach with a movie star named Jack Jones. Sounds like, almost like an Avenger or something. Shares his pain. Jack writes, hello, Dan, sucky ducky, quack, quack, Cummins. Longtime listener Jack Jones here. I found your show last year mid-pandemic and have slowly been working my way through the episodes, two to three a day while working at home sharpening knives. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure this is your job, but that also sounds terrifying. The most recent episode I've been listening to is the one of the Nexium cult. I also started online school this week to get the credits I need to enroll in school to be an MRI tech. Earlier today, I was listening to the episode while waiting for the professor to start our Zoom session. He started it. I paused the episode. It was playing through my Bluetooth speaker. Did I mention I have shitty hearing? I didn't? Well, I do. So the Bluetooth speaker turned up loud. After pausing it, class starts, we're discussing vulgarity in music and whether there should be a line that cannot be crossed. I shit you not. The professor calls on me. I unmute my microphone. As I draw my hand back from the keyboard, I accidentally bump my phone. And then you loudly scream, get on all fours and suck his dick. 
I immediately panic because my professor stares at me dumbfounded and I can see other people in the class laughing. I finally get it turned off right as you whisper and suck his dick. But, <laughs> but only if you're a woman and preferably 15 years old. God damn it, Dan. I think I'm gonna have to drop this class now. <laughs> keep up the show. It's wonderful. Definitely has helped me through some tough times. Hill Nimrod, keep on sucking. Your faithful and obedient spaces are Jack Jones. Oh man, Jack, that was beautiful. That was a rough one. One of the worst ones I've heard so far. I love it. Sorry that that happened, but not really. Good luck facing your classmates again. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't have really any good advice. Maybe you lean into it. Maybe own it, right? Just be a fucking creep to them. Maybe wear a shirt. Next class, it just says, who loves blowjobs? This guy. <laughs> Thanks for the messages, everybody. And good luck, Jack Jones. You are, you are going to need it in that class. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Please do not smoke crack. There's one thing I want you to take away from this episode. Just don't smoke crack. Just keep on sucking on anything but a crack pipe. Jesus Christ. I know. I thought you would never finish. I know. Do uh, crack break? Oh, you got some crack? Of course I have crack. Fuck yeah. Fucking go, dude. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.